Ladies and gentlemen, the June installment of School of September series with Corey Jacobson. Class is in session. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Wow, we are rolling right through this School of September series that we've been doing. Uh, this is going to be the third installment uh, with Corey Jacobson. And welcome, guys, to the Western Huntsman Podcast. This is episode number 26, and we are brought to you by Phelps Game Calls and Scree Extreme Mountain Gear. Uh, I want to – you guys might have noticed, if you've been listening only to the School of September series episodes, um, usually I have a different intro – uh, for for these particular episodes, but um, <laughs> I I told you guys from the beginning I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and I somehow erased that uh, MP3 with that intro music that I made, <laughs> and I have no idea where it went. It's not even in my deleted files, so I just used the regular Western Huntsman podcast episode intro on this, and it works out pretty good because this is going to be the only episode. Uh, that's going to be released this week because I'm heading up to go do some uh, the the last bear hunt of the spring bear season. Uh, I'll be heading up tomorrow and I'll be gone all week. So uh, looking forward to that. But uh, this is going to be a good one, guys. I've got uh, Mr. Corey Jacobson from Elk 101 on, and uh, we're gonna we're, we we spent about two hours. I think it's over two hours talking about hunting elk in September. Uh, and we cover a ton of ground. And what's funny is I made this big questionnaire, right? And and like we didn't even cover more than maybe 20, 25% of it. And so there was just a lot of information that I wanted to cover. And it ended up just being, it, it, it's just a, it's a great conversation to have with somebody like Corey Jacobson because we just kind of flowed and went and and uh, got after it and went over two hours of uh, of content here for you guys to uh, to listen to and enjoy. Hopefully you you enjoy this one. So before we get into that, um, I'll, oh, actually, you know what? Let's go ahead and play this new ad. I got a new ad to put on the show here, and I'll kick that off right now. If you're anything like me, you're sick and tired of successful hunters not sharing their locations, their honey holes, if you will. These selfish jerks simply don't understand you. Even though there are resources such as Google Earth, GoHunt.com, Base Maps, OnX, Preseason Scouting, Fishing Game Harvest Data, Unit Statistics, Hunting Forums, and many other time-consuming things available and mostly free to use, who has the time and energy to do this kind of research? I want this information, and I want it now. I deserve this data at my fingertips so I too can be successful but without the work. Luckily, there's a new product. Introducing the Honey Hole app. Don't waste your time one more second doing your own scouting and e-scouting. Get the Honey Hole app and simply piggyback off of everyone else's soul-crushing efforts. Here's how it works. 
We've hired the most advanced hackers in the country and allow them to work from the comforts of mommy's basement. Mom, I'm out of clean underwear and my pizza bites are cold. Our drug-tested, highly trained 1099 employees illegally hack into the mapping app systems of successful hunters and steal their waypoint data. This data is then shared with you, the real hunter. Imagine this. You draw a tag in a unit you've never seen. Scouting? Researching? Calling the local fish and game office? That's all in the past. Simply log into your app an illegally obtained waypoint from past hunters who foolishly marked their kill sites. If there was an elk there then, there will certainly be one there now. No more sweat, no more frustration, just notch tags. It's affordable to all hunters too, at only $12,487.46. But wait, there's more. Sign up today and we'll throw in a waiver form at no charge, giving you complete immunity from legal backlash that is sure to come. Don't wait. Sign up now and change your past failures into future success. Operators are standing by. Call 1-800-I-LOVE-SISSY-BRIDGES. <laughs> uh, all right. I got you guys with that one, didn't I? That's right. <laughs> Get the Honey Hole app. Now, guys, I made that as a joke, obviously, and uh, it kind of ties into uh, with this intro with the school of September, I've always, I've had, you know, kind of a little lesson or, or some kind of takeaway for you guys to, to get out of this. But, uh, in this one, I want to make it super quick because Corey and I, uh, we went a long time. And so I'm just going to make this one really quick. And I want to talk about real briefly, the concept of finding your own areas and scouting for elk, whether you're e-scouting, you're scouting in person, uh, you're doing, you're using all the resources that were, uh, covered in that, that, uh, fantastic commercial right there. Um, the, here's the thing, guys. When the the level of satisfaction you get, whether you harvest an animal or not, of gaining knowledge on on a unit or on a on a drainage or a mountain, you know, just an area that you're going to go into and hunt, and and we're we're going to talk elk specifically here. But the 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 level of satisfaction you get, especially if you do tag out, by the way. Um, by doing your own scouting and not asking people where to go, because this is the common thing, uh, especially on like Facebook and, um, you know, some of these other social media sites where this is the time of year where we start seeing these questions really pop up. Hey, I drew this tag. Uh, I'm not looking for your honey hole, but blank, blank, blank. You fill in the, you fill in the blanks there. You, you know where it's going. And there's nothing wrong with asking generalized questions about, hey, do you guys know anything about this unit in terms of, you know, maybe um, the, uh, how many wolves are in there or what's your experience been in the past? But when you start asking about locations, you're cutting yourself short because you need to know if you want to be a consistently successful hunter, you need to know how to find elk by yourself. Okay. Um, there are tons of resources. Back in the day, and I talked about this, I think, on the last episode, but uh, back in the day, I, I thought I was the only guy in the world using Google Earth to find hunting spots. Uh, obviously, I was wrong, but um, from Google Earth, you've got GoHunt.com. You've got all these resources. Uh, I, I love pulling up Basemap on my, my desktop, and it's a great tool. You could locate... Areas that hold elk just by knowing 
what elk need to survive. And that's a very important concept to understand. What do elk need in September? Well, the cows need to feed. The bulls are going to be following the cows, okay? It's a breeding season. They're in the rut, right? So you pull up these these resources, whether it is Google Earth or, or BaseMap or Onyx or um, GoHunt.com. You know, it has a lot of data and a lot of articles. It's, it's a great resource. Um, pull those tools up and locate these areas where you where you think you're going to find an elk. And what's going to happen is you're going to get in there and you're going to determine whether or not there are elk in there. And if you do determine that there are elk in there, that level of satisfaction just out of that, that is part of the hunt. That's part of the full experience of being a hunter. And it's super, super gratifying. I, I can't encourage you enough. When people give you exact locations or coordinates or share a waypoint for you to go hunt, I promise you that is not as enjoyable as doing the research and the work on your own. And you will most likely put more stock into an area that you've scouted yourself, whether virtually or in person. You'll put more stock into that area and you will push yourself a little bit harder and most likely you will be more successful than if somebody just gives you a spot to go go hunt an elk and find an elk. And when you're notching that tag and you've started from a drawn tag in a unit that you've never been in, but you've been putting in several weeks or months of work, e-scouting, driving through the unit, pulling up all the statistical data and and historical hunt records that that are readily available at no charge all over the place, and you're notching that tag, that's when you know you've become a true hunter. Because you see, you know, hunting is is just that, hunting. It's not just about putting an animal on the ground. You, you really want to experience the whole gamut that hunting has to offer so that you can really appreciate why this thing called elk hunting is such a life spot style for so many people. So do the work. That is going to be my message for today as we kick this off with Corey Jacobson. Now, Corey Jacobson, guys, if you don't know Corey Jacobson, I don't know where you've been, but um, he's uh, he's got elk101.com, which is a great resource and a tool for everybody to use. Uh, you can take it another step further and sign up for the course, the University of Elk Hunting, and it comes in an app form, and it's got it's got everything kind of broken down into, you know, he, he talks about elk behavior, how to, how to locate elk, how to e-scout, what we were just talking about. You go through that course and he will tell you, he will show you how to research and, and find elk via uh, these resources that we were talking about. So he's not going to tell you where the elk are. He's just going to show you how to locate them um, and, and make a game plan. And uh, then there's, I mean, there's, there's videos on how to uh, do the gutless method and pack out elk and uh, how to call It's got everything that you would need to do uh, or to know, I'm sorry, to hunt in September is is within this course. And I think it it even goes, well, I know it does. He also brings in Randy Newberg, who uh, talks about essentially hunting the late season or, or, uh, you know, the post rut into late season going October into November. um, And and Randy kind of takes care of that segment uh, throughout the course. Uh, it's just got a lot of information, and, and you guys have – what what is today? I think it's June 16th, 
right now, as I'm recording this, you might not listen to it on June 16th, but you get the point. There is plenty of time for you guys to go through that course and get a bunch of knowledge and, and gain a lot of educational advantages that you might not have otherwise. So uh, definitely check that out. Go to elk101.com. Um, I'll put that in the show notes. And by the way, if you sign up for the University of Elk Hunting, there is a promo code. If you just type in Huntsman, you're going to get $20 off. That's a really good deal. In fact, I paid full price when I signed up for it uh, a couple years ago. And so um, you get $20 off, promo code Huntsman. Obviously, this is a Western Huntsman podcast, so uh, a lot of people uh, misspell my name. It's just Huntsman, H-U-N-T-S-M-A-N, not E-N-A-N. So anyway, Huntsman, $20 off for the University of Elk Hunting, and I highly, highly recommend it. Get all these tools in your quiver, get 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 all these tools in your toolbox prior to September. Uh, get them down, and you, I, I promise you won't regret it. I'm I'm so looking forward to this September. I think it's going to be a great year too. I don't know if you guys have checked out the moon phases, uh, but the, the the moon is looking like better than it has for for years. Um, in in my experience, it, it looks like we're just going to have we're having a nice in my area. I'm up in North Idaho, uh, Western Montana, Eastern Washington, kind of that area. We're having a nice wet uh, spring which is always good. Uh, I just think it's going to be a great year. I'm so looking forward to it. I can't wait. So anyway, guys, hopefully you enjoy this. Again, this is Corey Jacobson. All the uh, all the stuff is in the show notes for you to check out the website. Um, make sure you check out our, our show sponsors at Phelps and Scree. Uh, there's promo codes in the show notes for that. When you support them, you're supporting this show, and we sure do appreciate that. And I uh, can't thank you enough for that. Uh, thank you guys for all the support you've given to the show thus far and uh, with that said guys buckle up Corey Jacobson here we go alright guys I am on the line with uh, somebody I I almost guarantee you already know uh, for this month's installment of School of September. Um, let's uh, give a warm welcome to Corey Jacobson. How you doing, Corey? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for, for inviting me to be a part of this awesome series. How cool is it we got Corey Jacobson on the School of September series? <laughs> well, <laughs> you, might, you might wait until the, the end of this thing to ask that because the, the feedback might be a little different once they <laughs> hear me talk about elk hunting. I, I highly doubt you're going to get any tomatoes thrown at you. <laughs> so I think we're yeah. in good shape. Awesome. <laughs> no, I appreciate you coming on, Corey. This is, uh, like I was telling you before we hit record, uh, the School of September's is our monthly installment that is coming out each month until September in an effort to educate, inspire, and and just give add, add to the passion that elk hunters already have uh, and, and get the juices flowing for September coming up. I, I have a I have a suspicion it's going to be a pretty decent September this year. Um, I'm liking the moon phases. I'm liking everything else that I'm seeing weather-wise up here in my area. Um, can and, and so, yeah, just just really looking forward to it. Can you give us, for, for anybody out there, the 0.5% the of the hunting population that might not know who you are, uh, <laughs> can, you, can you give us just a, a quick resume of, of Corey Jacobson, where you're from and, and, uh, what do you do now? Yeah, absolutely. No. And I'm, I'm grateful to, uh, to be a, 
able to just share my passion for elk hunting. You mentioned that, you know, just inspiring and educating. And that's, that's really, that's, that's me. And what I hope to be able to do in a nutshell is just, I grew up, you know, I grew up in, uh, I wouldn't say North Idaho, not quite as far North as you, but North Central Idaho in the Clearwater region. And I grew up in the middle of nowhere, really. And you know, you look at it now, but I went to a one room schoolhouse uh, in elementary school. There was one teacher for first through sixth grade. Um, so we really, I mean, we no lived kidding. out. It, yeah, it was 30 minutes to, to the nearest little town that had a gas station and a grocery store. Uh, my dad was a logger. But growing up that way, the, the Elkwoods was my back door. I mean, literally, I would get home from school, walk in the house, grab my bow, put on camouflage, and walk out the back door and go elk hunting. And so that's, you know, that's really how I cut my teeth and, and, gained that foundation that became the passion that it is today. I was just incredibly blessed to grow up in elk country, you know, back in the the eighties. I, I, yeah. I started elk calling um, in the early eighties and that was before diaphragms were even being designed and, and manufactured. It was back when the elk herds in the Clearwater region were, you know, one of the best elk herds in just, the nation. Yeah. Dynamite yeah, were, down there. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was, just the perfect combination and recipe of everything the you know my dad was a was a guide and an outfitter when he wasn't logging we grew up in that area um for whatever reason my talent that i was giving when i was that i was given when i was born was to be able to use an elk bugle and yeah you know that's i i'm not really good at anything else but that uh, that was mine that i that i got and so everything kind of just fit together that led me down this path that um, has brought me where I, where I am. And it, it certainly wasn't intentional. I didn't set out to be involved in the hunting industry or to you know, be involved in elk hunting education. Uh, things have just fallen into place. And I mean, mm-hmm. they literally have in a good way, just the, the, the path has been kind of paved before me to, to be able to follow and to do this. But uh, I got a degree at the University of Idaho in mechanical engineering. That led me to Boise. Uh, I met my wife there. We got married. I uh, worked at Micron uh, doing mechanical engineering stuff and hated every day of it. You know, a great company, but I just, I'm, I wasn't used to being confined to a cubicle. Yeah. And, I, uh, I know how you feel. <laughs> yeah. It, it just, yeah. it, every day I hated the traffic. I hated the commute. I just, I didn't enjoy it. and talking to my wife, we had a, I think a four-year-old, a two-year-old and a newborn. And I came home and said, what would you think if I left Micron, left the the guaranteed paycheck, left the, uh, the benefits, the health insurance, Mm -hmm. all of that. And she said, if that's what you feel is the right thing to do, I support you a hundred percent. And that led me to construction through construction. I had time now to be able to do things on the side. So Elk 101 was born out of that. Um, and yeah. it's just, you know, just everything's just been a, a process, a lifelong process that's led to uh, the platform that I, that I use today. And it, it's really similar to your mission statement, which is just recognizing that uh, the more educated elk hunters we have out and out in the field, the more that they're going to love it, the more that they're going to be passionate about it. And the more passion they have, 
the more longevity we're going to have uh, in this amazing sport. And Will yeah. Primo said it when I, I was interviewing him for the linguist film that we did a couple of years ago with Sitka. And he said, if you teach someone to love something, they're going to protect it. And yeah. that kind of, you know, that, that became my focus. I want people to love elk hunting. And if you fail at it and you suck at elk hunting, you don't love it, you know? And so I just, I don't want people to, you know, my goal isn't to raise success rates to hundred percent. It's for those who are willing to work for it. I want to share my experiences. Not that I'm an expert in, in any or by any means, but I want to share my experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, in the hopes that others will become better in the hopes that they'll become more passionate in the hopes that they'll help us in the, in the fight to protect elk. Yeah. elk. No, that's uh, I couldn't agree more, Corey. I mean, that's that again, that's the, the foundational basis for, for this podcast uh, in, in its very beginning. My, my goal was I, 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 I love that quote from Will Primos because it, it speaks to the exact idea behind me starting a podcast, which, uh, you know, two years ago, the thought of me starting a hunting podcast is, it would have just been, you know, just laughable. Not, not so much because of my, my hunting experience or expertise. I've, I've been, I'm a lifelong hunter and I've, I've seen success and I've seen a lot more failure (laughs) than success, but it's, it's, uh, I, I have found that the, the better I get at hunting, the more passionate I am and the more protective I am because we do have threats such as anti-hunting organizations and, and some of these politicians that want to, you know, so-called give land to the states and, and our public lands to, to into state management and, and, and not understand what it takes to really and truly manage our wildlife. And so I, I think that, that you hit it right on the nub and it doesn't matter if for, for me, I feel like if, if we're taking somebody that, that can listen to a, an episode like this and it, it makes it so instead of them just driving aimlessly on a bunch of dirt roads and, and walking a hundred yards down a, a canyon and, and not seeing an elk for for a month straight, and turning them into somebody that that gets after it, and maybe they don't get an elk, but they sure got an elk fired up, and they they had like three or four encounters that month, and they got that much closer to being successful. That person is going to be more pumped and more passionate about hunting uh, going into the next year, and really, that's that's the goal. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and I get you know we we get some hate mail. There's that group in the hunting community that grew up with hunting is secretive. It's, you know, hunting areas are sacred, which I, I'm a part of that. I don't share hunting areas at all, but there's oh, really? Group- I, I was going to ask you. For- <laughs> <laughs> you and 120 other people a week. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, and, and, but that's part of the education process too, is these hunters, they, they want to go. And so they'll send an email to me and say, I want to go elk hunting. Can you give me a trailhead where I'll be guaranteed to get into elk? Yeah, I know. Well, I, I could, but if I start doing that, you're not going to be very happy because there's going to be 300 other people there with you and there's not going to be elk and you're not going to have a good experience. But what I can do is give you the tools and teach you how to scout and find your own area and be confident that there will be elk there. Mm-hmm. But even with that, you know, there's there's a group of hunters that just – they don't like it, you know, the whole non-resident thing that they hate seeing non-resident vehicles. They hate seeing anybody and seeing somebody as a threat on their success. And so I yeah. do, I, we get emails and messages here and people say, you know, you're a sellout, you're, you're a trader, you're giving away all the secrets, you're, you know, doing it for money, you're doing all this. And I'm like, listen, 
pretty soon we're going to be backed into a corner. At, at some point, it's going to happen. And if you mm -hmm. aren't forward looking, you might miss that. But we're going to be backed into a corner and our privilege of hunting, it's not a right, our privilege to hunt is going to be threatened. Mm -hmm. And I would much rather share the woods for the next 20 years with a few other hunters who know what they're doing, who, who have been educated on the ethics and on you know, strategies and tactics. I would rather share the woods with them for the next 20 years than get my back pushed against a wall and realize there's nobody standing around me to fight for that privilege with me. And yeah, that's agree. That's really what, you know, it's the same thing we've talked about. If you inspire them, if you educate them, if you make them passionate, they're going to be a part of, of protecting and conserving. And yeah, that's it's so, so important. important. It's so yep. important. Yeah. That, uh, that's funny. I, what, what you said there, I, I totally underestimated the potential for negativity by starting a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I know hunters are just, you know, we're opinionated kind of people yeah. and, and we're a fiery bunch, but I, I like you, I think you're, uh, you know, it's actually doing a disservice to a new hunter by, by telling them exactly where to go. They're, yeah. they're really not going to learn, uh, how, how to develop their own hunting areas and their own hunting methods. And, and, and really that if they're not learning that, it goes back to what we've been talking about the last 10 minutes is, is their passion is not going to be as high. Uh, as it is for somebody that that knows how to e-scout, they know how to locate elk, and they know what to look for, what kind of areas hold elk, um, and, and that it just adds so much passion. Uh, I love talking about it. That's why I do this. That's I love talking about it. So, yep. Um, maybe we should we we should probably start getting into it, huh? <laughs> Let's do. We could. <laughs> I mean, we could talk on conservation for two hours. But uh, right. I I, I, yeah. I, some I of those newer episode. hunt. Yeah, some of those newer hunters might get bored. So let's talk about some exciting stuff first. <laughs> I kind of I like to give kind of a general idea of what I want the audience to to get out of this episode. And with this one, um, as with any of the School of September series episodes that we've done in the past, I, I want hunters, uh, whether new or seasoned hunters or expert level hunters, uh, I I'm my my goal is that they learn a few things out of this episode from your expertise that they can apply this season. And, uh, and maybe just, just get everybody I've noticed everybody so far has different takes on things like moon phases and wolves and, and, and different things like that. And so I just like to get everybody's take. Uh, obviously if, if for, again, going back to your background, if anybody doesn't know, Corey has just about hunted the entire American West for elk. Um, he, he gets elk in, uh, in Idaho and Wyoming and Montana. You've hunted Montana, right? I have. So, and that's, you know, one of my, one of my goals was, and again, it goes back to the education, but I wanted to be able to successfully hunt elk in all 10 of the Western states because they act mm -hmm. differently in North Idaho than they do in Southern Arizona. For sure. And I wanted to be able to experience all that so I could speak at least somewhat intelligently on those differences and educate those who might be hunting in New Mexico versus somebody who's hunting in, you know, Roosevelt elk on the, on the Oregon coast. So yeah, that, yeah. I have hunted, uh, I've, I've successfully hunted eight of the 10 states. I've got Nevada and Washington are the only two that I haven't yet. And it really just comes down to obtaining tags and, and going. Any, any plans, any solid plans to go to Washington to hunt elk? Yeah, no, I definitely, I don't yeah. have solid plans like calendared plans, but yeah, it's definitely in Washington's great. You know, you've got over the counter Roosevelt on the West side, you've got mm -hmm. over the counter Rocky stuff on the, on the East side. So 
um, opportunities yeah. there. It's just a matter of aligning the calendar and making it happen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also for anybody that doesn't know, you do a podcast with Randy Newberg uh, called the Elk Talk Podcast. Yep. And uh, I was just listening to that this morning. I was doing my, uh, my I, I hike around my, my property a few times a week to try to uh, try to get this winter coat off of me. <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was listening to your last episode today. You guys were talking about tag draws and points and, and stuff like that. And so if you guys haven't heard the, the Elk Talk podcast, it's super informative. Uh, make sure you check that out as well. Yeah. And no, then, Randy's, a, Randy's a fun guy to sit and talk about anything with. So <laughs> I know. He's, he, he provides he's a lot of color. Yeah, <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. <laughs> For sure. Uh, all right, let's let's kick this off with some. I've got like this outline of of questions that I sent over to you. Who knows if we're going to stay on track with this? But let's let's kick this off. What do you think new hunters get wrong in terms of expectations for their first time in the September elk woods? Man, that and you know before I even get into that, it's it's hard sometimes because I've been elk hunting now for thirty five plus years. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's sometimes hard to remember back to when I started and think about some of those initial things that I did wrong. Um, some of the things I take for granted now, I think just, you know, as far as things that I think are so incredibly basic, they're just natural now. Yeah. And somebody will ask me, and sometimes I just glaze over those because they are uh, so natural now. But I think, you know, the things that I hear at least uh, the last few years from brand new hunters who come out for the first time, and then either we do a survey through through the website or they just reach out and, and report on their first time elk hunting, you know, one of the primary things I hear is physical conditioning. And, you know, listen, elk live in steep, rugged areas. That's just, that's where, that's where yeah. they're going to be most likely found. And if you're not used to that, especially if you're coming from back east or, you know, your first time, you just, you aren't prepared physically for the extremes of the outdoors, I think it can be a real eye-opener. And not only that, it can be a major obstacle. Yeah. And so I I think physical conditioning is uh, a big part of being prepared for a first elk hunt. And it's something that you can't overlook. It's something that I would strongly recommend people don't take lightly. And it doesn't mean that you've got to get a gym membership and spend four hours a day for six months in the gym. If you do, you're going to be a better elk hunter. You're going to be in better shape, mm-hmm. um, but you don't have to. But there are some things that I think are important to do to to prepare yourself for that. Well, like what what is your regimen in terms of physical conditioning leading up to September? What what is it? What does Corey Jacobson's workouts look like? You know, I've actually, I've converted our garage into a home gym and it's got basically everything that I need to do a a full body workout. So, um, you know, I focus mostly on like legs, back, shoulders, core, some of those things you use all the time. You know, you aren't Mm -hmm. using your biceps when you're elk hunting. So it doesn't do a lot of good to, yes, I certainly do bicep curls and things like that, but it's not the focus, you know, my, you're not, you're not doing the, what I call the pretty boy workouts where it's, you're, you're actually doing things that are going to benefit you such as shoulders and back, I think are always underestimated for elk hunters. Um, and 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 I'm finding core is so critical. Core holds your back together. You know, your core muscles 
are what keep the stress off of your back. And so if your mm-hmm. core isn't developed, your back's taking that load day after day. And if your back is bad, it translates down into your hips and into your knees and you know down your legs. And so there is kind of a, a full system that needs to be developed from a muscular standpoint. Sure. Um, before we spend too much time on that, though, I want to stress the, the cardiovascular side of it because you're hiking. Your lungs are continually being stressed. And if you're on a steep hill going up, your legs are doing most of the work, and that's the you know, biggest muscle area in your body, so they're needing more oxygen. So the cardio side is, is super important, yeah. as well as the, as the muscle side. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm fortunate. I get to spend a lot of time in the outdoors. And so a 25-pound backpack on my back is a pretty common thing. So I'm getting a workout you know, several times a week just by virtue of what I do. Um, but in addition to that, I'm, I do spend um, not nearly enough time and not nearly as much time as I want to, but I do spend time in the gym. Uh, I'm doing things that are going to make my my time on the mountain with weight on my shoulders uh, a little bit more enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, th- you know, on that note, with in terms of the gym, obviously, with uh, with COVID-19 lately, that's that's not been an option for a lot of people. And and for me, it's really never an option because I, I just live far enough from town. Uh, it just doesn't work. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I like the home gym setup. And there's, there's so many resources out there, too, that, uh, you know, there's apps that, that design workout programs for you and, and uh, you know, different, different methods to get in shape. And I'm definitely not uh, where I need to be. Um, but, uh, I, I start thinking about it more and more as September gets closer, man. What are we three months out? <laughs> Less, <laughs> <Yeah>. Less <laughs> than three months. Yeah. 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 So this, uh, this question is, I, I, I thought I, I was pretty proud of myself for writing this question. So, um, I, it's, it's an interesting little twist. Let's say, you know, everything that you know now about elk hunting, right? But you've never actually been elk hunting before. How would you go about planning your first elk hunting trip? I know that that's not even possible in the human mind, but uh, it's if it's Corey Jacobson's uh, very experienced mind planning a, a first elk, and we're mainly talking to somebody who maybe lives in the Midwest or back east, or they've never been out to the west to hunt. Uh, how, can can you kind of walk us through what what you would do, what you would recommend planning wise? Yeah, I think I had to read that question like probably 30 times and I uh-huh. still don't know if I understand it. I'm pretty <laughs> sure there's a there's a country song I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then or so is that it's something along, along those, those lines? lines? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so a- no, exactly. I think Yeah, no. I and it is a hard one to answer and I kind of alluded to that earlier that you know, we take so much for granted that it's hard to look back and say, okay, if I know everything I know now, but I've never hunted elk before. What would I do to plan that first elk hunt? Um, it's it's just hard. Yeah. It's hard to, to conceptualize that I know everything I know now, but that I've never Never had any of that experience. (laughs) Yeah. That experience that gave me that knowledge. It's hard to separate those two things. But with that being said, um, if I was just planning a hunt right now and I have, I have that knowledge base that I have, but I'd never been before, I think I would overlook a few important things. Number one, well, number, not number one, cause it's most important, but first thing that comes to mind is I might plan an elk hunt by myself. 
And I think for many reasons on my first elk hunt, I would probably want to have a hunting partner. Um, and I don't know okay. that I did. I, I liked hunting by myself for a long time and I still enjoy, you know, the solitude of that, but yeah, I still went on it. my first hunt. I think, uh, you're going to be able to share some cost. You're going to get beat up mentally on that first hunt. There's going to be a lot of failure and having somebody else there to share that burden with you and to pick you up when you're down, um, is important. Uh, when you're successful, it's, it's very important to have somebody else there to help you pack it. Uh, and then as far as calling, you know, just the, I think the efficiency of being able to call in an elk, uh, if it's done right, having a partner there increases that efficiency. Uh, I, I couldn't even put a, a percentage on it, but sure. three, three or four fold at least. Yeah. You got, and you're usually hunting with Donnie. Um, yeah. have you ever been in that Jeep? He's got that wicked Jeep he drives around in. Not while it's ever been in drive. I've sat in it, but he's never let me go for a ride in it. So he just doesn't, he, I, I think that's probably a good policy. That's <laughs> like, let's not, don't let Corey Jacobson take his wife out in that thing or something. He's going to get in there and spill his Kool-Aid all over the seats or something. <laughs> no, it's root beer. You guys, yeah, exactly. you guys had a root beer celebration. Was it, was that in Oregon where you got that nasty letter about being a non-resident? <laughs> that was Oregon. Yep. Yeah, and, uh, that, that's an interesting, uh, interesting take on it. And you guys, you had like a rental car or something or a rental truck that you had up there. So it wasn't even the right plates. Yeah, we thought we'd just go incognito and get a rental car and or truck and park it. And because, you know, I mean, it just, we do the videos and everything. So we're, we've got exposure on YouTube. People recognize, oh, he's driving a white Ford F-150. And I used to have personalized license plates, which I got rid of those, got rid of all the stickers off the truck, you know, so hoping to blend in a little more, but mm -hmm. I, I love to meet people. Don't get me wrong. I'm not antisocial or anything, but out in the elk woods, man, well, if we hear a that car a coming, burden. yeah, we hide in the brush until the car goes by and then we run for the truck and get in it so that nobody sees us because... <laughs> If people do see us, they're going to want to stop and talk. And then, it, you know, it, it does, especially if we're hunting in somebody else's area. It is such a burden to try to protect that area and not, you know, we do a pretty mm -hmm. good job in the videos of not showing landmarks or scenery, but just even people recognizing our vehicle and stopping and wanting to talk. Now we have that, what if they go and tell somebody they saw us here? And you know. So I, I have a question on that note. When you took the rental truck, back to the rental place did it have elk blood in it it did not and oh, if uh, you were careful any, huh well no unfortunately anybody who's watched uh, or watched our destination elk series knows that the roosevelt elk in oregon are winning right now and <laughs> so, so we you, didn't get a chance to get blood in the back of that truck while we were oh in see i thought i thought you guys uh i thought you guys got one i thought donnie got one in in oregon or maybe you guys were still in idaho at that point i can't remember it's been a while since i watched that yeah, so we hunted Idaho opening day, and Donnie shot that really big six-point opening day yeah, in Idaho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like three days later, we left for Oregon. So it did kind of all blend together there. But no, we uh, we are 0 for 2 in Oregon, which hopefully this year we, uh, we're planning right now tentatively to go back, and we'll, uh, we'll get yeah. the upper hand on the elk this year. Well, I think that whoever you had with that, that trigger cook-off Com com oh, competitor guy probably slowed you down with all that food he was making it made it really hard to get out of bed and <laughs> go elk hunting every morning right. that's for sure yeah it looked pretty good so it was um 
Okay. So going back to, we've got a new hunter. Uh, they're, they're coming out for the first time on their, they're, they're coming out West to, to hunt elk um, without dropping like a small fortune. What, what three to five must have gear items does, does that hunter, what should they focus on? Yeah. And that's, you know, again, if, if somebody's coming out and they're a hunter already, they've got a lot of the gear they need. And, and I think we, we do a lot of educating brand new hunters and mm-hmm. talking about, you know, here are the realistic expectations of what it's going to cost to go on a, on an out of state elk hunt for somebody maybe who's coming from a state or a location east of the Mississippi river. Yeah. And it's not as expensive as a lot of people have in mind. And I think they get hung up on, well, I need a, a new bow. I need new boots. I need a new backpack. I need a new full new system of camouflage. I need all these things. So I got to drop $4,000 on gear and then it's probably four or $5,000 to go hunt. And I don't have $10,000 laying around, so I can't go elk hunting. Mm-hmm. And realistically, if you're already a hunter, you've got almost everything you need. Yeah. There's a few things that, that you'll need to add and maybe a few more that might make it a better experience, but don't get hung up on the gear. The gear is the least important part of, of going on a hunt. And I would, you know, I tell people all the time, you are the most important piece of gear that you take into the elk woods. So invest in yourself, invest in your physical fitness and your elk hunting knowledge, things like that before you get hung up on, Oh, I've got to have a new backpack. I love that answer. Yeah. But, but there are a few things. So number one on my list would be a wind detector. And a lot of people have probably never heard of that if they haven't hunted elk, but it's just a little bottle with some powder in it that you can puff up in the air and determine which way the thermals or the wind are blowing. And you can buy them for five or $6. So that's, that's not going to break the bank. And I would say it's probably close to importance uh, for me anyway, as my elk calls. You're, uh, yeah, I, I, I may have cut out just a little bit there and we're, we're talking wind detector still, right? Correct. Yep. Okay. Sorry about that. Yep. So, you know, the, the wind detector is, is vital. It's probably number one on my list of something that I would suggest a new elk hunter purchases. And they're like I said, five or $6. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I, I like my elk calls, uh, my strategy and my, my platform for hunting elk is calling elk. Um, so getting, you know, getting calls that you're comfortable with and confident in, uh, a couple different diaphragm calls and at least a bugle tube would be the minimum. So you're going to spend, you know, their 40 or $50 there. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get into, you know, some of the more, I guess, expensive gear, a backpack is important, a comfortable backpack that can support weight because you're going to have a pack on your back pretty much all day, every day. And so you don't want to have a pack that just mm-hmm. kills your shoulders after two days with just 20 pounds in it. And a pack is important. Do you have, do you have a recommendation on a pack for a day pack? Whereas we're talking like people that are base camping and, and going in for the day and it'd be something totally different. I'm sure for backcountry hunt. For sure. And that's really, I spent a lot of years just using like a 1200 cubic inch day pack. And then when I killed something, I'd hike back out, I'd get my freighter pack or my frame pack to go back in and pack the elk out with. And I realized Number one, if I try to take out any kind of load on that little pack, it's not built for it and it about kills me. Mm-hmm. Number two, that's an entirely wasted mm-hmm. trip that, you know, if you're three or four miles from the truck, you're spending half a day and a lot of miles just to get out and get that pack. So I spent a lot of years looking for a perfect, what I called a crossover pack that allowed me to day hunt, you know, compressed down, was small, wasn't bulky, was light, but then would expand or allow me to, to haul out 
a considerable load of elk meat comfortably and, you know, capacity wise. And so I personally, I use the exo packs. They're made here in Idaho. Uh, I think the, the new K3 pack is the one that I'm using. Um, they've got a couple different sizes. Um, the, the 2200 cubic inches one I used for a while. I think the, the newer one is 1800 cubic inches. They also have a 3200 cubic inch one. Any of those would work great for a day pack and they compress down. Uh, I think my pack weighs four pounds empty. So it's not like it's a nine or 10 pound bivy pack like we were used to five years ago. Yeah. I've still got um, one of those. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got a couple <laughs> too. I put them on my kids and I don't, I don't want to spoil in, them right out of the gate. Yeah. Break them in the right way. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but, I, uh, you know, and, and it'll carry, I've hauled out way more weight than I should ever have on my back and the pack carry, it does its job. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it does, it allows me to cross over from day hunting to packing, uh, packing heavy loads. And so that's, that's what I use personally. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a good point. Um, Ned, on that note, are, are you kind of more into setting up a base camp and, and hunting from, from a base camp versus going into the back country? I notice you do a lot of base camp kind of stuff, which is what I do mainly. Um, what's your take on, on the differences between backcountry hunting, especially in the context of like a new hunter thinking about coming out West and, and, and doing their first elk hunt? Yeah. And that, you know, we, I've been the full spectrum there. You know, I started out going steep and deep, but then coming back to the truck every day, you know, in high school, we'd get an evening hunt. So we go as hard as we could. And then we had to be back to school for the next morning. And then just hunting weekends, you know, you've, you've got to capitalize on the time you have. And then I started thinking, you know what, I can get away from people and I've got a week's vacation. Now I can go into the back country. And so, you know, I started looking at ultralight stuff, but no matter how you cut it in September, if you're going into the back country for three to four days, it's really, really hard to get your pack under 40 pounds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time doing backcountry bivy hunts for elk sheds and stuff in the spring and you've got weather to contend with, but you don't have your weapon. You don't have a lot of other things that add weight and it's still, you know, a 35 pound pack is fairly light for me in the spring even going. And that's with a, you know, a sub three pound tent, a sub yeah. two pound sleeping bag. You add water on there and that, you know, that gives you six or eight pounds right there. And so the whole backcountry thing, it's taxing. To hike all day with a 40-pound pack on your back, you become less motivated to hit some of those deeper pockets. Um, you get tired out sooner. And the, the biggest problem that I had was we would spend almost a whole day getting back into this amazing country and get back there and find out there was a pack of wolves in there and the elk weren't talking or the elk had been pushed out or mm. there was just two other camps, which you get back in 10 miles and find two other camps or you're like, forget this. I'm out of here. There's people everywhere, you know? And yeah, absolutely. And so we have transitioned back to a base camp and we'll drive to a drainage and we will hammer that drainage, you know, with a light 15 to 20 pound pack for 12 or 14 miles a day. And I think that we are fresher doing that and we're able to cover just as much country and get away from people just as well. But in the same token, being able to stay more mobile and relocate quickly if we need to. And so, yeah, that base camp setup where we are, where we've got six or eight areas marked on the map that we're going to check out and we just go and hit it hard until we find that pocket of elk. 
as uh, I think is a more efficient way for us, the way that we hunt. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that uh, there's a lot of like nostalgia behind backcountry hunting and going in with a pack. And, and I would encourage people to try it and do it because it is a totally different experience. And it's, it's, it's humbling, but it's also, uh, it's very rewarding whether you're successful or not. But I'm with you. My biggest fear is, is getting pigeonholed 10 miles, 15 miles back into the backcountry, realizing there's no, you know, there's no elk sign there. There's, there's a lot more wolf sign. Uh, you know, I even do that from a base camp. I'll get, I'll get two or three miles back and I'll realize now that there is not going to be any elk in this drainage and I will truck it back to the truck and go 20 miles down the road and, and try try it again. You know, that's, I think the difference. Uh, and so you, you make, you make a lot of good points there, but I, I, you know, in, in that, in that sense, I, 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 I'd always encourage somebody, you know, give it a shot to try, try a little backpack hunt at least once in your life. Uh, it's something else. <laughs> Absolutely. Just, I think no, it does reduce your odds though. <laughs> it does. And elk are probably the last thing. Well, I won't say the last thing, but they're probably the hardest thing to backcountry hunt for because mm -hmm. you've got a big camp you got to carry on your back all the time. Then when you kill an elk, you've got to bring it out all that distance. And, you know, for us, we, we hunt in it as a team. It's really a team effort. And we usually have six, maybe eight days to hunt with at least two people. So we have two tags to fill. And if you're spending a day getting into the backcountry, you kill an elk and you've got at least a day to get out and get back in, you kill two elk and you got to hike out. I mean, that's over half of your hunt right there, just getting back and forth. And it just doesn't leave you very many hunting days. So I think, you know, mm -hmm. hunting from a base camp, you kill something, we're always within, I would say, five miles of a road. Yeah. And we kill something, we can put it on in one trip and get it out and it's going to hurt us but we're hunting the next morning. We're, we're yeah. back on elk the next morning. And you can't say that when you're going in and, and bivy hunting or setting up a, a camp 10 miles back in, it just, it reduces the number of days you get to spend hunting elk. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Awesome. Well, good points. Um, all right, Corey, let's, let's kind of switch gears here. And uh, I want to talk about calling and now, Court, do you know anything about calling in elk? Let me tell you this. <laughs> I know that it was a long, difficult road to learn how to call elk. I do know that. So uh, now, just just give us an idea. How how many world championship titles do you have now? You know, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it's I've been doing it a long time, and if you do anything long enough, you know the the pointer is going to point to you every once in a while. So, um, I've been, I've been going to the elk calling contest for a lot of years and they've called my name a, a few times in that long stretch of time I've been going. Well, you got a last year too, didn't you? I did. Yeah. So, yeah. and then this year they've, they've canceled, uh, the, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation annual, um, gosh, I'm totally drawing a blank on what they call that rat camp or elk camp. Elk camp, yep. Elk, elk camp. Uh, they, they've can't, haven't they? They've canceled that for this year, haven't they? They did. Yeah, they just had to make a decision because there's so much that goes into planning those events. That you know, with everything that was going on with the mm -hmm. coronavirus and all that, they just looked ahead and said, you know what, we have to be a hundred percent full steam, and the amount of money that it takes to put this on that we have to invest right now 
for the uncertainty that we may not even be able to hold the event, they had to make the decision to, to cancel that. So mm-hmm. it's usually in July. Uh, it's, it was in Park City, Utah last year. That's where they were planning on holding it this year. And they had to make that difficult decision to cancel it, which, you know, yeah. I guess if you if you look at it from my perspective, it's, you know, I, I was fortunate to win the elk calling contest last year. And so that means I basically just repeat this year and, and now you're the two. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, yeah. I think Reigning you should get another trophy. for yeah. two years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who do we have to talk to, to, to make sure that's, uh, you know, nice and confirmed. That's, exactly. now that, that is too bad, but I would imagine that, uh, you know, I, 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 I can call in elk, but I would never get on that stage and try to compete. Uh, I would get laughed out of town and they put a billboard on the highway coming back into town with my picture on it saying, don't let this guy back in town because I, I just, <laughs> it would not work. But, um, I, I imagine that, that doing those competitions probably is like a, a mental burden, like a stress building up to it. And so it may, maybe it was kind of a, a, a relief here and they, they were canceling it this year. I don't know. There, and you know, there's, there really is, it, it takes something that you enjoy, you know, elk hunting and calling elk and it adds a bunch of stress to it. And it's, there's a ton of benefit. I wouldn't be where I am today without that contest. There is no mm-hmm. doubt that it adds some legitimacy uh, and a title behind my name so that people are like, okay, he, he might know what he's talking about. I'll at least give him an ear and, and listen. Um, and so it's given me that platform really to, to do what I do now. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah sure. The, the mental stress of, and, and really there are some great callers who can't get up in front of a group and call. You can hear their nerves in their calling and you get them out in the elk woods. They're as good as anybody you'll ever hear, but you get them on a stage and they just, you know, they crack. And so there is that element of the performance side of it that that's added to it. And yeah. See, yep. for me, I don't think it's a, it, it's a, it's, it, it's, it's more of a skill issue and less of a, like I'd have, I, I mean, I do a podcast. I wouldn't get stage fright. I'd, I'd get up there. I would just have to go up there knowing that I'm going to get my butt handed to me. And, and that's totally fine. And I think that's why I call an elk because I sound so terrible that these bulls are like, you know, that has got to be that sick and twisted cousin I've got. I'm going to go whoop his butt. Uh, you know, something just to get them out of here. I don't want to listen to that anymore. I think that's why, why it works for me, but, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's awesome. So when I hear people say all the time, that's great. You can be on stage, but that doesn't translate to, to elk hunting or the flip side, you know, is, is I feel you don't have to be a great elk caller in terms of quality contest type calling to be a great elk hunter with calls. I don't think that, that that's important. Um, but the calls I that I use, the calls I use on the stage are the exact same calls I use in the woods. I don't vary at all. If I, if I use it on the stage, it's because I believe in it in the woods. It's an, it's a sound that an elk makes. And that's what the contest is about is replicating authentic elk sounds. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, it's, there is a, there is some carryover, but on, a, on another flip side, I've known people who have won the world elk calling contest that are not very good elk hunters. You know, they sound great, but there's a lot more to calling an elk than just sounding like an elk, you know, and we yeah. can get into that a lot more later, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, they're, they're not, they're, there's definitely crossover in the two contests, the one in the woods and the one on the stage. Um, 
but yeah, it, it takes but, yeah. a lot more than a contest call than a stage call to, to be able to call in elk. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, let's talk, let's talk on that note for a minute. Let's, uh, I, I always like kind of throwing out scenario type questions. And I, I feel like uh, we, the, the audience and, and especially me, you know, that I, and I've said this before a few times on the podcast, the best part about doing this podcast is I got to talk to guys like you. And, and I'm like going to be theoretically one of the most knowledgeable guys you, you've ever met. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so let's say we've got um, a, a brand new caller or hunter and uh, they, let's say they drew a tag. Here it is. It's uh well, by the time this is released, it'll be kind of towards the end of, of June, but it's mid June right now, give or take. Uh, is this enough time prior to September one to become proficient enough to, to call in elk? Yes, absolutely. And what does that, what does that hunter need to do to become proficient starting from the very basics? Yep. So I think the, the part that, that comes back to my engineering background is I learned to simplify things in an effort to make things, uh, to boil them down to their simplest form and make them the most efficient as possible. There are other calling styles and, and strategies out there that focus on multiple sounds that elk make, multiple sounds that, that you need to learn to make to be able to call in elk. And in no way am I saying that that I'm right or that they're wrong, but my own philosophy is, is a very simple approach, which lends itself really well to a new hunter because they don't have to get overwhelmed trying to make difficult sounds, trying to learn 20 different sounds, trying to learn when to use 20 different sounds in the woods. Um, so for, for me, if I'm starting out with somebody brand new, even if it's somebody that's been hunting for a long time, I'm going to share my go-to calling strategy, which only involves three different sounds. And those three sounds are probably the most basic and simple sounds that somebody learning could, could hope to learn and that elk are going to use. But they're also the sounds that elk use uh, more frequently than other sounds. And you might look at it and say, okay, so that's the basic. And then you get into a more advanced calling style where you learn all these secondary sounds or these more advanced sounds. But really, when we get into my calling strategy, I'll, I'll share a lot more there. But I really don't think that it's it's necessary to mm-hmm. burden yourself with all of that. And again, that is in no way criticizing anybody else who who feels that they there are a lot more sounds, who focuses more on the language of the elk. Um, but in my mind, the fewer ways or the fewer things that I have to, to mess up, the more chances I have of doing it right. So those three sounds for me, um, it's just a basic cow call, uh, a basic location bugle, and then a challenge bugle. And the challenge bugle is the most important part of all of that. But three sounds, uh, I feel that using a diaphragm call is is most important. It gives you versatility. Uh, it gives you more realistic sounds. They're definitely the hardest thing to learn, but I think if you invest some time in it and start off the right way, you can learn to do it and gain confidence uh, in a very short amount of time. Uh, let me ask you this, because I, I, I tell me if I'm wrong on this or not, but my, my recommendation when somebody asks me, you know, kind of what the foundation is to learn to call elk proficiently, uh, I tell them to start with, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you're, when you're learning a musical instrument, you have to dedicate a certain amount of time every day. And with, with learning how to bugle, my recommendation is always give it at least 
10 minutes every day for 30 days straight. And then you can kind of back that off if, if you, because I always, you know, I go like an hour where I'll, I'll practice different bugles and different sounds and, and stuff like that. Or, or even if I'm playing guitar, I'll, I'll sit down for an hour and practice. I think a lot of people that's, that's a lot of time. That's too much time. And so my take has always been give it 10 minutes a day for 30 days. Am I, am I off base with that? Or, or can you correct me on that? Or, or where, what do you think about that? No, I, th- I think it's great. And I think the, there's a couple really important things. You know, I've done a lot of seminars and spent a lot of time in a, in a booth that shows and people will come up and be, you know, they'll say, I've been using calls for 20 years, diaphragm calls, and they just don't work for me. I'm a terrible caller. You know, do you have something other than a diaphragm that I could use so I can actually sound like an elk? And I'll ask them, what, what diaphragm are you using? And they'll pull it out. And it's some triple reed, thick diaphragm <laughs> that would be hard to even make turkey sounds on. And then I'm telling them, that call won't even make a cow elk sound. Like, nobody will be able to make cow elk sound with that. Mm-hmm. And you give them the right call. They put it in their mouth. And within five minutes, they're sounding 10 times better than they ever have. And all of a sudden, their confidence goes up. And so finding the right call, and it, it isn't a brand thing. It's just understanding how calls are made and how you make the sounds. You know, if you want to make a cow sound, it's a very soft, subtle, um, deeply controlled sound. You don't need a lot of air. You need a lot of control with your tongue muscles. And so that practicing 10 minutes a day develops those tongue muscles and gives you that muscle uh, memory, that repetition that's going to be important. But you don't mm-hmm. want to put a, a thick, heavy diaphragm or latex diaphragm call in your mouth and try to finesse a cow call out of it. It's just going to be impossible. So what you end up doing is blowing really hard, putting a whole bunch of tongue pressure on there, and now you can't do the, the mechanics that are required to make that sound. So understanding the mechanics of the sound you're going to make, finding a diaphragm that'll fit, and then practicing to get that, that muscle memory down, those are three super important things yeah. to do to get started. Oh, that's fantastic. So in, in your mind, uh, getting a good cow call, a locator bugle, and then that, that mean, nasty, uh, uh, lo- uh, or I'm sorry, challenge bugle. Yep. Can, can, you, uh, can you give us a little demonstration here in, with, with the three sounds? Yeah, absolutely. Ho- hopefully people listening, you have your bugle tubes ready so you can, you can kind of hit that little button on the, on the podcast. It, get, it bumps it back 15 seconds, and, and you can just keep practicing that. Not only that, but put your fingers on the volume control right now, just in case it gets really loud. So <laughs> I am wearing a headset, so I'll kind of adjust it so I'm not blowing directly into the headset. But I'll start out with the cow sound. And, and all of these sounds, those mechanics I'm talking about, learning how to use diaphragms, learning uh, how to cow call, learning how to bugle. Mm-hmm. We've got a series out on YouTube that you can go to and watch that step you through step by step the basics of that. That, you know, again, starting on the right foot, starting with that right foundation is so critical because if you get some bad habits, cow calling, you're overblowing, bugling, you're just forcing a bunch of air and not using your tongue to control the latex, things like that, it's going to be really hard to reverse that in the future and be able to come back and then do it the right way, which will improve the quality of your calling. So here's just a cow call. And the cow call, this is the the basic communication cows use. They make a lot of different sounds. They do cow bugles, they do estrus whines, they do all these different things. 
But when I'm calling an elk, all I'm really trying to do is just convey to a bull that there's a cow here. So I don't need to worry about any of the, the extra things, the, you know, the, I don't know what you call them, extracurricular sounds. Yeah, just, yeah. Just, just a basic cow mew. Yeah. 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 Again, so so that's just, you know, they're they're very soft and subtle. You don't have to make them loud. If I want to make it loud, I'm going to use my bugle tube to do a cow call to amplify it. Because if I start trying to make it loud without that, that's going to take more air and more tongue pressure. And then I lose the mechanics that are needed to just make that soft, sweet sound. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, that sounded great. Um, uh, let's let's shift into a, a locator bugle. And, uh, and then what, what we'll do guys is we'll, after we, we talk about these three calls, then, uh, Corey, we, we can talk about, um, when to use these sounds. Yeah, absolutely. So location bugle and, and uh, we'll talk about that, but it's just a very simple bugle. It's the one that every elk hunter can do. It's, there's nothing hard about it. You know, I, I could spend five or 10 minutes and teach anybody how to do a location bugle. It's basically just running up the octave, holding that high note for a few seconds and then coming back down. There's no emotion in it. There's no aggression in it. All I'm doing again is broadcasting. There's a bull elk up here and Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not trying to communicate anything other than that. Hey, I'm a bull elk. I'm bugling. Is anybody else out there? And the location bugle sounds like this. Perfect. And I'm wondering if, if we lose some of that high note in the microphone here, but hopefully it, it carried. No, through, I, I, I think it carried through. Uh, are you using, you're not using like a, a Yeti mic or something, are you? No, I've got a, a really nice headset. And so I was turning the headset up, but let me, uh, let me do this. Let me set the headset down. So the microphones and I'll back away from the microphone a little bit and see if that'll pick it okay. up a little better. Yeah. So here's yeah. the, here's location. Bugle. Location. Bugle. Perfect. Yeah. So, um, if, if you guys are listening, that was a little bit quieter. Corey, are you back yet? Yep. I'm here. Yeah. So that, I, I think you're okay to, um, to get a little closer to that mic for sure, uh, for, for going forward. But, uh, yeah, that, that location bugle is, um, so, like you said, just simplify it. It's a super simple sound. So, uh, and then we're going to go into a big, hairy, nasty, uh, challenge bugle. Now, do you, do you consider a challenge bugle? Well, actually let's, let's, (laughs) let's get back to that now. I know where you were going with it. And I thought the same thing. I thought, no, I'm going to demonstrate it first. Then we'll talk about it. Uh, Yeah, let's do that. All right. We might need to get you a little closer to the mic on that one. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's, uh, do it this way. There we go. Yeah, that sounded a lot better. We could we could hear that one a lot better for sure. Excellent. Um 
so you had kind of a little growl at the beginning, went into the high note. Uh, you could you could tell there's a lot more emotion in that one, and then and then dropped out. So those three sounds, you basically essentially what you're saying is is if a if a new hunter can get those three sounds down, they they can they can be successful calling in elk. I think they should have full confidence in their ability to call an elk if they can learn those three sounds. And they don't have to learn them to, to sound perfect, but if you understand the purpose of the calls and you're able to couple that purpose with, um, I, I don't want to give away the, I don't want the cat out of the bag here yet before we get into how we use them. But <laughs> yeah, if you understand why you're using those calls and can learn to make the, the parts of the calls that are important, I don't think there's any reason not to have 100% confidence in your ability to call in elk yeah. uh, in September. Totally. So, okay, well, then let's talk about uh, when we're using these cows, or cows, goodness <laughs> sakes, uh, when we're using these calls. Um, starting off, now, I want, for, for anybody that hasn't watched Corey Jacobson on on these these YouTube series like Destination Elk and, and some other ones that you've been on, uh, your process is essentially you are covering ground and you're bugling a lot. You're, you're throwing out these locator bugles, trying to elicit a response. Once a response, uh, you, once you get a response out of a bull, uh, you guys go after that and you try to close the distance and get that bull uh, super fired up and get him into bow range. Is that is that a fair assessment of of how you guys hunt? Absolutely, yeah. So. If I want to call in an elk, I have to find an elk that is being vocal. And that might mean walking by 10 bulls in a morning that aren't bugling to find one that is. And I'm fully aware that, that we go by elk sometimes completely on purpose. We'll even get a bull sometimes that'll bugle that's not very fired up, that's not in a great spot, that will be like, let's leave him and come back in two days. Let's go find a bull that's fired up. And that's my goal every day that I'm elk hunting is to find a bull that's fired up. We call it the bull that's ready to die today. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, there might be three bulls there. One of them might be screaming his head off, but he might have 60 cows, and we realize the chances of calling him in are pretty low. There might be another one that uh, is bugling a ton, but he's running because he has two cows, and he's a, a timid bull, and he's running. And then there's another one bedded over on a north-faced bench that's just whistling once every 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. probably going after the one that's bedded there that's whistling every 30 minutes because he's one that is the most likely for me to be able to get fired up, to be able to get to respond to the calls and, and to be able to kill. So, um, yeah, we our, our, our game plan is cover as much country as we can broadcasting location bugles to get a response and then determine the, the attitude of that bull based on that response if necessary. And sometimes we don't have that luxury. Sometimes it's like, man, we haven't heard a bull bugle for three days. I'll take anything right now and yeah. go and spend two days hunting that elk. So no, yeah, that's super, good, good summary. super interesting. Uh, the, the, the process of that, because it, it's, it's actually, uh, and a lot of people will argue this, but it's super effective. And I remember it last season, um, on the, on the, the, the like a, the South facing slope, there was a bull bedded down and he's about 250 yards away from me, and he's, he's in some shade. And the problem was I couldn't really close the distance because of how open it was around him. He was a smart bull. He's like, if I lay here, I could see the whole mountain. Nobody's sneaking up on me. And um, what, what I did is I ripped off uh, several bugles at this guy, 
And this thing didn't even flinch. Didn't even, it didn't turn his head to look. Uh, he just, he just kind of laid there tongue out, you know, I don't know what he was doing. And, uh, a couple miles later, um, a much smaller bull was a lot more fired up and I had a great encounter with that one. So I, the, the point I'm trying to make is that same bull that didn't even flinch, didn't blink an eye at the, at the bugle that day. Uh, do you think, you know, the next day or two days later or three days later, that, that same bull could be the one that is, is super fired up, super hot and ready to, ready to fight. Absolutely. Yep. And, and I've seen it, you know, where you go into an area and it's like, we can't buy a bugle, but I know there's elk here mm-hmm. and we'll leave and, and go hunt somewhere else and come back a week later. And it's just elk bugling everywhere in that area. So yeah, I think that there's just some days, some bulls are fired up and other days they're not. And you yeah. know, it might be a little bull. It might be a big bull. There's, you know, I think bigger bulls are smarter, um, but you get a bull that's in the, in the pre-rut or the peak rut. And I think uh, calls can be effective on any elk. Yeah, I agree. They all, they all kind of turn into, you know, ninth graders. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. So you're out, you're, you're covering country up and down a drainage. Um, and, and I want to, we'll, we'll talk a little thermals, uh, here in just a minute, but, uh, you're, you're covering ground and you, you, you get to a point where, how do you determine where you're going to, you're going to make the next vocalization? And you mentioned we bugle a lot and we do, you know, and that's, we got a note left on the truck and I'm sure a lot of people have heard the story, but we came back from a day of hunting and somebody had left a note and said, if you were hunting up this drainage, you bugle way too much. Ah, uh, no. And yeah. I remember that story. That is, you know, what is hilarious about that? I came down out of a drainage back to where my truck was parked and it wasn't even a trailhead. I just parked in some random spot and a guy was sitting there waiting after I just had one of the best elk encounters I'd ever had in my life. A, only about probably less than a mile from the road. Uh, and I, I didn't get him. He saw me draw my bow and ran off. Um, I came down and the guy's sitting there. He's like, you know, let me give you a piece of unsolicited advice. You need to probably just leave that bugle in the truck. And I'm like, really? Because I, I was just 20 yards from an elk that uh, I screwed it up because I, I drew back and he saw me. And um, I didn't tell him that. I said, oh, okay, I appreciate it. You know, whatever. Um, I didn't want him to know that bull was up there. So anyway, it's yep. so I found I, when you, when I first heard that story, you tell it, I, that, that was hilarious because that's exactly what happened to me, except for, I didn't have a note. I had this, this grumpy old guy just sitting there waiting for me to come back so he can give me an earful. Yeah. it always seems like when the people take the time to go find your vehicle in the middle of the day or whenever it is and, and leave a note on it, it's typically the time that we're butchering up an elk and packing it out to them. And, you know, and that's just, we, we do bugle a lot and that's, I will admit it, but it's not just like we're wandering aimlessly through the woods, blowing on a call, scaring all the elk out of there. I would, I would take somebody doing what I do any day over somebody hunting silently with the wind wrong, Mm -hmm. you know, And, and, this guy, the funny thing is the winds, you know, in the morning, the thermals come down the mountain. So we go up the bottom of the draw and position ourselves at the back end of the Canyon as the thermals change. And then we move up the side hill and get up on the side hill above the elk where they're bedding. This guy at daylight was up on the ridge top. So all of his thermals were coming straight down the hill and right into that drainage. So he's worried about us bugling too much and scaring the elk out. 
Well, he's standing up on top of the ridge listening, blowing every elk out of that drainage with his scent. And so, you know, just, just things like that. But the point yeah. of it is, you know, we, we bugle a lot. And basically, anytime I get to a vantage point where I feel like my previous bugle hadn't reached, I'm going to bugle again. And so every little nook and cranny, every little draw, you know, if we're up on a ridge and we're bugling down into basins, if we're on a main razorback ridge and there's just draw after draw after draw on each side, every time I come to one of those draws, I'm bugling. Uh, anytime I can see a, a north-facing bench that I haven't been able to see before. So really it's, I want to make sure that my bugle touches every square inch of, of the area I'm hunting. And if I get to a a little turn on the ridge where there's a north face down below me. I feel like my previous bugle might not have been able to, to make it into. I'm going to do another location bugle into there. Guys, I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about who makes this show possible. Scree, Extreme Mountain Gear. This is high-performance hunting attire and gear, scientifically tested camo patterns, and it's all backed by a great company that I wouldn't recommend to you if I didn't truly believe in it. The name Scree kind of has a, an origin out of the Scree rock. They changed the spelling on it, but that rock found at the bottom of rock faces and cliffs, particularly in high elevations, real rugged type kind of country. Uh, I've been using Scree for uh, all spring for, for barren turkey, and I'm really impressed with it. I had the founder on a few episodes back, and he said something that really struck me. He wanted to produce high-performance hunting gear, but at a responsible price. It's a real interesting term, and it's true. Everybody knows you can drop a small fortune on name-brand hunting attire, but with Scree, you get the name-brand, you get high-performance hunting gear, a lifetime warranty, VIP sizing guarantee, which it doesn't cost you anything to exchange the gear if it comes in the wrong size, and very effective concealment patterns, all without breaking the bank. I really like the bundle options, especially the Elite Starter Bundle. It's like a really good deal, perfect for September and October hunts all over the American West. Uh, you should check it out. It's a great way to get started in the gear and, and begin with your layering systems. Uh, Scree offers a complete layering system for all terrains and all conditions. And it's it's just a great deal, especially, again, that, that Elite Starter Bundle. Oh, and if you use the promo code the Western Huntsman at checkout, you'll get 15% off and free shipping. That's a big deal. Great gear, great company. It's a great story. It's a whole package. Check it out. The link is in the show notes, guys. Phelps Game Calls. One thing I love about the companies born out of hunting is their story. The American success story that walks us through how something started small and grew into something spectacular. Phelps Game Calls is quintessential to this. Jason Phelps started making calls as a hobby in 2009, wanting to make a more realistic sounding, right? Now, 11 years later, Phelps is one of the premier hunting call companies on the planet and for good reason. It's a great story, and Phelps is just filled, it's one of those companies that is just filled with excellent, first-class, salt-of-the-earth kind of people. I've been calling elk with, uh, with Phelps for a long time, uh, and long enough to know that it's an effective, realistic, it's a durable, and easy-to-use call. I gave my teenager a Phelps read last summer to learn on, uh, before September, you know, and like a month later, she was bugling bulls in with me. It's the same exact read I use as an advanced caller, so they're great for beginners and advanced callers as well. So I'm a huge fan of the Phelps game, uh, elk calls, but I also use their predator calls. 
The Fawn in Distress call has been my go-to for bears this spring. I also called in a few turkeys with the Black Bat Turkey Read. They also have waterfowl calls and are coming out with some new deer calls. Hit up the website and check it out. The link's in the show notes. And if you find something you like, use promo code HUNTSMAN10 for 10% off. Whether you're just getting started or have expert level calling skills, check them out. Phelps, get them close. I I was talking to a guy one time, and I, I, I really like the way he described it. Is he, he wanted me to picture the sound coming out of my bugle as if it were water filling up the, the drainage or the, like every crevice of the mountain. He's, and, and that's what he, how he explained it. He wanted, he wanted that sound to fill up every crevice, nook and cranny of that mountain because at some point a bull would, would answer him. And, and this was years ago. I, I yep. didn't take his advice. I should have. Yeah. No. And that's, I mean, we, we call it painting the mountain with a bugle, you know, and that's mm-hmm. the same exact thing. You just want to canvas that whole mountain with your bugle. Now the unfortunate side is as I'm walking up this ridge, there might be a point over on another hillside where something or someone can hear every one of my bugles that morning. And if there happens to be somebody up on a ridge top as I'm going up the bottom and then I hit the back of the canyon and come across, they will hear every bugle I make. And it might be 30 bugles. And to them, that might be way too much. To me, if I'm not getting a response, it's not too much bugling. If I am getting a response, it's not too much. I don't think there's such thing as too much bugling. Um, if I'm trying to get a bull to, to respond to me and I'm keeping the thermals good, I don't think you can over bugle. I don't know where the concept of over bugling comes from. Uh, because if, if you watch an elk, if you watch a bull elk in September, uh, that's, that's super fired up in the rut, sometimes they, they'll stand there and they will just bugle one after another <laughs> as they're walking. And, and I don't, I don't know where the concept of bugling too much comes from. Yeah. Uh, except to say maybe they, they just don't know much about elk. So, so when you're coming up and, and you're doing these, are you, are you usually going to throw out a couple of cow sounds and then throw a lo- locator bugle, or do you start with a locator bugle and then maybe add in a few cow sounds later? And after you've bugled, how long do you, do you wait for a response? Yeah. And so it really depends on the terrain, but for the most part, I'm going to start with just a couple soft cow calls and the reason why is I don't want to let out a loud location bugle if there's a bull 70 yards in front of me that I don't know about, because then we're, we're, we're caught with our hands in our pockets. You know, that, that mm-hmm. bull is there at 70 yards. We don't even have time to set up. We don't have time to take cover. He might step out 10 yards and be looking right at us. And so I do want to throw out a couple soft cow calls that maybe if there is a bull close, he's like, where did those come from? And he's not, you know, doesn't have his pin down. I throw out a full location bugle trying to paint the hillside with a bugle and there's a bull 70 yards away. He knows right where we are and he might walk out and be looking at us before I even finish that bugle. So I will usually start with a couple cow calls, listen for, you know, 20 or 30 seconds. If nothing responds to it, then I let out a location bugle. And again, I'm looking for a bull that's fired up that wants to die that day. So I don't want to stand there for 15 or 20 minutes to solicit a, a bedded moan out of a bull necessarily. I want a bull that's you know bugling back before my bugle even finishes. And so I, I am pretty impatient. I will throw out a location bugle. I'll wait 30 or 40 seconds. I'll throw out another location bugle. I'll wait 30 or 40 seconds. And if nothing's responded, I'll probably take off hiking. And so I'm not spending more than usually 
two minutes, three minutes max at each of those points. At each of those spots. And then 100 yards later, essentially, you're doing it again. Possibly. Sometimes it's 400 yards. Sometimes it's 50 yards. You know, it just, it really depends on if I'm on a hillside and I'm like, oh, I can see that bench down below. So I'm going to bugle from here and I bugle and nothing answers. I might walk 40 yards and get to the, the top of the ridge or the point of the ridge there. And now it opens up a new draw on the other side of the ridge to me and I might bugle from there. I'm, I'm getting the, the notion that you're not much of a tree stand type kind of hunter. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I don't know that I've ever hunted elk from a tree stand and, you know, I'll sit on a water hole in an afternoon or something, but it's usually just feel like, Hey, if I'm going to take a nap, I might as well take a nap somewhere where I have a chance of an elk coming in. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not a sit and wait for, for elk hunter. No, I have, I have such a tough time with that. And that, that I bring that up because it's, it's been coming at me a lot lately with, uh, I, I've been, I've been bear hunting the last, you know, four weeks. And, uh, I've just been getting my butt kicked. I don't know much about bear hunting. It's really my first year I've committed to, to going after a black bear, you know, and, and so I I'm using a call, I'm using a call to, to, to try to try to call it a bear. And all I'm, all I'm doing is calling in coyotes. So <laughs> I, there's been a few coyotes that have lost their, their life, uh, the last, the last month or so, but I, everybody's telling me, no, 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 no. You've got to get a tree stand and, and set bait. And I just don't know that I have that kind of discipline. I I'm disciplined enough to know that I don't have the kind of discipline it takes to sit in a tree stand all day over bait or, uh, you, you know, I I've never been able to do that for deer. Um, I've got a buddy that he hunts elk from a tree stand and he'll call him into the tree stand and he gets them every once in a while. Uh, but I just, it's just not my thing. Yeah. And there, you know, a couple things, I think, if you are hunting over a water source or a well-used trail, uh, trail cameras have made it so you can pattern elk. And, you know, a lot of times, especially pre-rut, they are somewhat patternable. And, you know, I think that early season can be really effective if you have a good location for a tree stand. Um, you're able to contain and, and maybe, I don't know, but your, your scent is probably easier to... Um, I don't know what the word I'm trying to look for, but just you're able to control your scent a little better, maybe in a tree stand. Yeah. But and, you're getting above the scent line. Yeah. Uh, all and, the time. Yeah. So you can position yourself that way. So you can be effective uh, and efficient hunting from a tree stand, but to call, if I heard an elk call and I was in a tree stand, I am jumping out of the tree stand. Like, I don't care how high it is. I'm probably just leaping from it and taking off after the elk. <laughs> yeah, Cause I too. can't, I can't sit still when I hear an elk bugle and hope that he comes to me. The other thing is if I call from the tree stand, man, I've locked myself in. I have no mobility. It, it becomes a very static situation. And I found that when you're calling elk, you have to be dynamic. You have to be able to move, whether it's move ahead and push that bull to, to force him to come in or whether it's move back and circle around to get a better shooting lane or to get the, the wind better in your favor. But being locked in a tree and trying to call in an elk is a really, really tough place for, mm-hmm. for me to vision. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I gotta say there, I've watched your videos and, and there is this, the, the, you'll get a bull respond and you get this look in your eye like you go from being a, a human to like this machine, like you're the Terminator or something. And, and uh, you can almost hear that Terminator music and, and you just go after that thing. And I love it. So let, let's talk on that point. You, you, you sent off a locator bugle. 
you get a response, what do you do at that point? So the, the response from the location bugle tells me where the bull is. And that's, that's my first goal is to pinpoint that bull. And so I might need to make two or three location bugles there and be like, no, he's not on that side of the ridge. He's over here and really pinpoint. Cause the last thing I want to do is overestimate where he is and get past him and bump him or have him smell us. So I need to know with pretty good certainty where that bull is. The other thing that, that, getting two or three responses out of him allows me to tell is whether he's stationary or whether he's moving. If he bugles once and the next time he's 300 yards up the hill, it's like, okay, he's with cows and they're going to, to their bedding area. Um, but if he's on a North face and there's a little bench there and he responds, and I'm like, I can't tell if he's on this side of the ridge or the other side. I let out another bugle. He answers back and I'm able to say, okay, he's on that bench. He's probably not going anywhere. That's probably his bedding area. Now we can make a play. And once I pinpoint him, my goal is to get in as quickly as possible and as close as possible to that bull without him knowing we're coming. So you've got to, you really have to think like an elk. You have to put yourself in that elk's position. He's 300 yards across there. He hears an elk bugle and he's like, oh, there's another bull over there. He bugles and says, I'm over here. At that point, he's not necessarily saying, I want you to come over here or I'm coming over to you or I'm going to run away. He's just communicating, Hey, I'm over here. And he's sitting there minding his own business still. Nothing's been communicated that there's any threat that anybody's going to come to him or anything. So he's sitting there, whether he's bedded, whether he's feeding on a hillside, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden a hundred yards away, he hears a cow and he's like, Whoa, Whoa, I bugled. Now this cow must've liked my bugle and she's coming to me. And so in his mind, it's September, he wants to be with a cow, and now this cow just calls from 100 yards away close to him in his zone. What's that elk going to do? He's going to bugle. He's probably going to bugle. Yeah, he might come sneaking in to check it out. That happens for sure. But for the most part, he's thinking, this cow just called because she heard me bugle before, and she's coming over to check me out. I'm going to let her know right where I am. So he bugles. Ah, yeah, yeah. This cow, you know, in his mind, he's like, that bull up on the ridge doesn't have nothing on me. I'm the best sounding bull in here. This cow came to me. <laughs> and while he's sitting there gloating in his in his victory, he gets hammered by a challenge bugle right there with that cow 100 yards away. I mean, you just, you have to think through the mm. psychology of an elk. If you're 300 yards away and you let out a cow sound, he's like, okay, there's a bull up there with a cow. You bugle, he answers, you cow call, he answers, you challenge him. He's like, I already know you have a cow. I already know she's yours. Okay. He's way less likely to respond aggressively to that. But here's a bugle from 300 yards away. And then a few minutes later, here's a cow call a hundred yards away. He's not necessarily correlating. These two are together. This mm-hmm. cow is coming to me and she's interested in finding out where I am. I'm going to tell her where I am. He tells her and says, Hey, good looking. Why don't you come up here and hang out with me for a couple of weeks? And before he gets done hitting on her, this bull that he doesn't know is there comes in full force and just runs down his throat with a verbal assault, putting all that emotion of saying, this is my cow. You're an idiot. We're going to fight. And that's what we do in September. Hmm. And his reaction is going to be completely different than the first scenario I described where you're 300 yards away. And I always, I always liken it back to my college roommates. You know, if you're, you're in college kid, you're 20 years old, 21 years old, <clears throat> you're walking down the street and there's a guy across the street that 
thinks he's all that. And you, you walk a hundred yards away from him and you say, Hey, I don't think we can be friends. The guy's probably going to shake his head and be like, what an idiot and keep walking. Mm-hmm. But you see that guy walking, you realize he's going around the corner right up there and you run and get ahead of him around that corner. He walks around the corner and you jump in his face and start telling him what a loser he is. And he's an idiot and you're screaming uncontrollably. What's going to happen? You get punched. Fists are going to fly. You know, the, <laughs> the reaction is completely different because of the emotion you put into it. And so my, my whole goal is to get in close to that bull cow call to get him to respond thinking that he's communicating to a cow and then hammer him immediately with that aggressive challenge bugle. And you have to put that emotion into the bugle. You know, you get right yeah. there and you're a hundred yards away and you give him the Marty McFly bugle and he's going to shake his head and be like, you're pathetic, <laughs> but you give him the, I'm in your I like face. That. The Marty McFly bugle. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and it really is. If you if you yeah. have that emotion of, gee, Biff, gee, do you really think I'm an idiot? Gosh, you know, if you have that emotion in your bugle, the elk's going to sense it. Yeah, for but sure. But if you have the whole Colgan emotion in your bugle and you're calling him out and screaming at him and telling him he's a loser and you are the king of this mountain, you know, you're 100 yards from him. You're in his territory. You've insulted him. You've embarrassed him. There's a cow at stake there. You've given him every reason in the world to lose his senses and to let that ta- that testosterone just come rushing through his veins. And he loses all sense of control. His eyes roll back in his head. He starts slobbering. He rips trees out of the ground trying to get to you. He doesn't and know why. You've just tripped that trigger in him that's natural, a natural response. Yeah, he's just mad. He's just mad. And, yeah. and you're, So your preference is... Uh, that that you want that bull so fired up, mad, eyes rolling back in his head, that uh, you know that that's where you're going to get your opportunity versus trying to seduce a bull into coming into a cow sound. Yeah, my my experience and it works. Cow sounds work, and if a bull, you know, if I let out a cow sound and before the cow sound even finishes, this bull screams, and I can tell, oh, he liked that, and I give him another one, and he fires right back. It's like, okay, just keep giving him what he wants to hear. Yeah, but, yeah. If he's 300 yards away and I just, you know, you, you kind of have to play it, but my go-to, I let out that cow sound at a hundred yards away. And if he bugles right back, I'm hammering him at that point, because I know he's thinking about that cow. He likes that cow. Um, if it takes three or four minutes for him to let out a, a little weak moan, I'm probably not going to hammer him right then with the bugle. I might, and it, it works a lot of times, but I'm probably going to build up to it and, and keep those cow sounds the problem with cow sounds is when a bull hears a cow sound, their first reaction is bugle and tell that cow to come to me. They aren't necessarily thinking I've got to get to that cow. They're thinking, let they're the cow to come to me. To him. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is if they do come in, they're going to be a lot more likely to be wary. They're going to be stopping and listening to see, is there danger? Is this really a cow? They're going to come in and they're going to stop and it's going to be quiet and you're going to have to do a lot more coaxing. They're going to know right where the calls are coming from. They're going to stop and look. They're going to have more time to circle around and get the wind in their favor. When you get them to drop their guard and want to fight, they don't care about the wind. They don't care about how big you are. They're coming straight in with fire in their eyes. And, you know, as a, as a hunter, that is the best opportunity. That's the highest you know, percentage yeah. of shot. It's uh, they're just, they aren't coming in and thinking about their senses necessarily. 
Now, what about what about chuckles and grunts? We haven't really t- touched on that because we we were we we're sticking to you know the the real basics. But on a, on a more advanced level, what what is the purpose of of using chuckles and grunts and and maybe some other vocalizations? Yeah, so chuckles are hard to do, and for me, that's the number one determining factor between is the bugle that I just heard a real bull elk or another hunter because so few hunters can do a realistic chuckle mm-hmm. and I think that they lose confidence a hunter will lose confidence in not being able to do that in not being able to chuckle and so if they can't chuckle good don't chuckle there's no reason to chuckle you don't need to chuckle to call in elk and you know I firmly believe that that a chuckle doesn't add anything to my efficiency to get that that bull to come in. It'll add some realism, and I chuckle all the time. And a lot of it is just I get so worked up bugling, I want to chuckle. But I don't <laughs> think communication-wise in trying to trip that trigger of, of an emotional response from the bull, I don't think that a chuckle adds anything. I think it hampers people in, from a confidence standpoint far more than it helps in a, in a calling situation. So okay. I, don't, I don't put a lot of importance in it, and I don't stress that too much to people. Okay, so that it's always interesting getting that take because um, the uh, I think it was the last School of September series episode that I did in the intro. I talked about the importance of getting a chuckle down so that you sound authentic, and because I have found sometimes a bull won't respond to a bugle, just a locator or anything else, but they but uh, I'll, I'll let it I'll let something simmer for a minute and just be quiet, and I'll throw out a chuckle, and that bull fire right up. And, and so I, maybe that was just circumstantial or coincidental, but um, that is, is just an interesting take on it. And I, I totally agree. That's, that's kind of where you could separate whether or not you're getting uh, played with by, by an elk or, or another hunter is by, based on their chuckles. Yeah. No, and going back to your point of if a bull doesn't bugle with your location bugle, you throw a chuckle out and he responds immediately absolutely and when i do location bugles you know i might do three or four different sounds trying to elicit that sound from that bull um and we saw it with roosevelt elk roosevelt elk a lot of times will just chuckle they won't you'll just hear this yeah yeah i noticed that (laughs) and you won't even pick it up if you know they're 200 yards away because it's so dense there Hmm. but a lot of times they'll just chuckle and a lot of times they'll only respond to a chuckle and so being versatile, I think that's, you know, it's not necessarily an advanced calling tactic in my mind. It's having a, uh, a level of versatility in your calling to be able to elicit that response. And once okay. that bull chuckles, then I'm going to hammer him with that challenge bugle. You know, I'm just trying to get him to respond. So can you, can you kind of demonstrate on your bugle uh, what a good chuckle sounds like? I don't know if I can demonstrate a good chuckle, but I can demonstrate my <laughs> chuckle. <laughs> no, Come on now, world champion. It, I think you could do it. And I do. There's a, there's a video in that series we talked about on YouTube on how to chuckle. And so many people struggle so much with chuckling because they hear it and they try to replicate it without understanding how to use their lungs and the, the diaphragm to make it. But it's really, all I do is just a full bugle. And then I shorten that full bugle and then I shorten it more and then I shorten it more, but I'm still going through the mechanics of a full bugle to get each of those individual chuckles. And then in between each of those chuckles, I'm just taking a deep breath in. So I'm really exaggerating that breath in. So I'll, I'll demonstrate the chuckles here first. Okay. 
Well, that's that sounds, a chuckle. Sounds really good. Yeah. But all I'm doing, I'll slow it down here and, and show you the mechanics of that. So it's just okay. a full bugle. Right. So that basically just taking that bugle, hitting that high note, and coming back down sharply with a growl, and then taking mm -hmm. a big breath in. Okay, guys, listening. If you've got your bugle tube, <clears throat> just, uh, how we started off slow like that, and then and then worked it into a faster chuckle. Hit that fifteen second button and do that do that several times, and and I promise you'll sound a lot better than than you did before. Yeah, yeah and I think sounded great. The hard part is so many people hear that fast cadence in the chuckle, they put their diaphragm in. And they try to do that and they end up either spitting their diaphragm out or swallowing their diaphragm and, you know, their tongue's getting confused. It doesn't know where to go. They're hiccuping in the middle of a breath in and just, it makes it really complicated. But when you break down those mechanics of how to make that sound and start in the basic simple form, it becomes a lot easier to, to hit mm -hmm. that cadence after you get those mechanics. Yeah, and that's that's exactly how I've, I've always tried to describe it in, in think of learning an instrument a guitar player doesn't just come out and, and play these licks right off the bat. You know, it's muscle memory and they, they start slow and learn them very slow and then just work into that faster rhythm like, like you had it there. Have you ever swallowed a diaphragm reed? I have not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched people just about do it. I've never seen anybody go full, full swallow on it, but there's been a couple where they gagged on it and yeah. had to spit it up. I've had a couple of times because I I I'm a I do a lot of solo hunting and I've had a couple of times where I I've gotten a little bit nervous. It's like, man, there is nobody to give me the Heimlich maneuver if this <laughs> thing goes wrong up here. <laughs> I better be careful. <laughs> Can uh, you imagine death by diaphragm read? Oh my goodness! I would want that on my tombstone. Let that just be out publicly known. Exactly. <laughs> Asphyxiated on a diaphragm elk call. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, let's hope that doesn't happen, actually. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, do, you have, do you have an opinion as to what a bull elk, and it doesn't matter if we're talking chuckles or grunts or, or, or bugles, obviously, a, you know, when we're, we're getting a really aggressive um, a bugle, we kind of, we have an idea of what, what they're vocalizing there, but do you have any opinions as to like what a chuckle or a grunt means when a, when a bull is doing that? Or is it just an emotional thing? I don't. And that, I think that's where I'm different than a lot of other people who teach elk calling tactics in that I don't, I don't get, I was gonna say, I don't think there's a language. I don't get caught up on the language. I think the communication portion, if I want to call in an elk, there's really only two things that a bull responds to. He either is coming in to check out a cow or he's coming in to fight another bull. Yeah. And I think even, even the people who, who, you know, have a, a very detailed elk language in their, uh, their repertoire of calling, I think they would even agree a hundred percent with that. Yeah. That, you know, an elk is either coming in because he wants to check out a cow or he's coming in because he's, you know, there's a bull that he feels is a threat or that he feels is an easy opponent and he's coming in to fight. So my mm -hmm. goal in calling is to elicit that response out of a bull, either a desire to fight or a desire to breed. And that's where the cow call comes in. If he wants to breed a cow, 
a simple cow call is going to tell him there's a cow here. And if it's September, he has a natural desire to be with the cows. And so I don't have to get fancy. I don't have to do anything hyper estrous. I don't have to, you know, those things can absolutely add effect to what I'm trying to do. But at the same time, do I really want to convince a bull that he wants to breed? No, I want to go find the bull that already knows that, that already is wanting that, that, you know, that's the bull that wants to die that day, not the bull that I have to remind that it's September and that I'm a cow and that his primal instinct should be to want to breed that cow. I don't want to have to remind him of that. That's, that mm-hmm. bull is going to be a tough opponent. I want to find a bull that the second he hears a cow call, he loses his mind. He's desperate. He comes running to that cow call. Yeah, same with a, yeah, same with a fighting bull. I don't want to have to scream at that bull for an hour and a half till he finally is like, all right, fine. I'll come in and bugle. You're a bully. I'm probably going to be timid because I don't want to get in a fight with you, but you've convinced me to come in. I want a bull that woke up that morning and has a toothache. And he is like, I am going to thrash the next thing I hear. I don't care if it's a porcupine. I don't care if it's a brook trout jumping in the creek. Whatever I hear, I'm going to attack it because I am just in a bad (laughs) mood today. Yeah. That's, that's the elk I want. And I might go buy 10 of those other elk that, yeah, you might be able to convince one of them to come in. You might not, but you might, but I'm going to go buy them and I'm going to look for that elk with the toothache. I'm going to look for that elk that is so desperate for company that when a cow moves, he takes a chance that that domestic cow out on the range is a cow elk and he comes running in just to check it out. Those, Those are the elk I want. You've brought up raking a few times and I, I want to get your take on, on raking and using raking for, you know, personally, I, I feel like raking is like one of the most underutilized calling techniques that elk hunters don't use. Um, what is your take on it though? It's the golden ticket. Oh, so, so we, we pretty much agree on that one. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so if I'm trying to get a bull elk to fight me, and me being aggressive with my bugles just isn't sealing the deal. He's back there and he's getting fired up, but he hasn't moved my direction. He's kind of holding his ground and saying, you want to fight me bad enough, you come up here. If he's doing that and I throw in raking nine times out of 10, it seals the deal. And the reason why is raking is a display of dominance. That's what the bulls do to display to the other bulls their dominance. You know, it's not necessarily a bugle. A bugle, they'll challenge each other but a spike can challenge bugle. A nine and a half year old seven point bull can challenge bugle. Mm-hmm. But when they start raking, they can tell, yeah, this sounds like spindly antlers or he's really getting after it on that tree. He's trying to tell me he's the dominant bull here. So a couple things happen. Number one, when I start raking, almost always the other bull starts raking and it's just him displaying back to me who's more dominant. Well, when that happens, if I'm the shooter out in front and I hear a bull start raking, I know I can get 10 yards closer. So I'm going to move 10 yards closer because when he does come in, I've got uh, an advantage. Now I've moved closer. If he starts raking again, I'll move 10 yards closer. I've, I've gone from 150 yards on a bull elk that was raking to 20 yards and shot him while he was raking at 20 yards. So it gives oh, me a man, chance. That to, is good to know. Yeah. I, I could have done that last year and I didn't, I, I was too afraid he'd see me, but you're right. Well, they're I'm, so distracted. Yeah, and that's the thing. You, you have to think about the elk's three senses. What keeps them alive is their sense of smell, number one, their sense of sound, number two, and their sense of sight, number three. When they're raking a tree, if you have the wind in your favor, typically their heads are down. They, they lower their head to get their antlers on the base of that tree or down lower on the tree. 
So their head's down. There's a good chance they might be pointing away from you. And if they are, that's when you can make your move because they can't see you. They're making all sorts of noise. So they're not going to hear, even if you snap a branch as you're moving in there, they're not going to hear it. So they basically wipe out two of their three senses. You get the wind in your favor and you can walk up to that elk without them knowing you're coming. The thing to keep in mind is once you can see them, you have to determine, okay, if I can see his head and his eyes, he can see me. But if he's mm-hmm. pointed away from me or if his head's in the brush, I'll run at that elk. I'll run 10 yards and stop and you know, be like, okay, did he pick his head up? Is he looking around? You, know, you can get away with a lot when they're raking. So that's my number one play. Number two, when I rake and they rake, if I get super aggressive and just start thrashing that tree, it's usually all it takes to break them loose. They've just, they're like, okay, you've threatened me. You've insulted me. You've got cows, which has my interest. And now you're displaying dominance in my bedroom. That's just, it's not cool. I'm coming in and we're going to settle this. Yeah. So raking Hmm. for me is it's the, it's the deal sealer. It really is. Yeah. The the one thing that I would recommend to people um, one time. Now I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this (laughs) if you're ready for it. I didn't have a stick to rake. And so I started using my bugle tube and it was working. Got him raking. Well, I went to rake this, this brush that I thought had kind of a bigger branch on it and it kind of slipped off and the bugle tube whacked my shin. And that was followed by some adult language and the the elk heard me cussing at the bugle tube and (laughs) lost the opportunity. I bet you I'm the only person that's ever happened to well, that, that's probably not true. I don't know. Probably not. Probably the only one that would admit it, though, on a public forum. <laughs> it, it left a you – no, I, and I have I, – and my listeners know I have no shame. I, I will I, – I am uh, pretty forthcoming with my, with my uh, bad hunting moves and mistakes that I've made and uh, have no problem with it. But uh, I, I, it, I hit my shin so hard with my bugle tube that I had a bruise the next day. Um, and, and it was like, you know, it felt like uh, – you watch those cartoons as a kid with Wiley e. Coyote and they get hit in the head and that little bump comes up and that's what it felt like. It was, that's it was pretty awesome. painful. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've busted my knuckles open raking. You know, you grab a, <laughs> yeah. a stick and your hands are cold. It's September. There's frost out there. So they're cold anyways. And you start going to town on a tree and that stick breaks and all of a sudden your knuckles go right up against the trunk or against the branch and, uh, there's nothing yeah. more painful. But. I know. Yeah. So I when know, we're talking it's, it's raking, it's more frustrating too. Yeah. When we're talking raking, it's it's uh, there's no commercial device needed. You just pick up a stick off of the ground. I've found that a stick, you know, inch and a half, two inches in diameter, uh, three feet, four feet long, allows you to not drag your knuckles across the branches as you rake. <laughs> but then you just find a. I like a dry tree with some dry limbs on it that I can hit and break. So you just hear the snapping and the crunching and I go to town. I mean, when I get done, it looks like an elk raked that tree. It's, you know, barks peeled off of it. All the limbs as high as you can reach or thrashed off of it. And I'm just trying to display aggression again. I don't want to go soft and just kind of scrape, 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 scrape. I want that bull to know I'm fired up and I am proving my dominance here. It makes me so excited for, for September, man, <laughs> just I talking know. about this stuff. So, <laughs> you know, talking about September and, and there's, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, early pre-rut uh, to, to peak rut to post rut. Uh, can you give us the, the Corey Jacobson 
breakdown of of the month of September. You know, obviously, I'm going into into October a little bit, and maybe the end of August. But what what does preseason look like to you, or early season? Um, and kind of kind of walk us through that. Yeah. So, you know, Randy Newberg, I give him credit because you know I I always had pre rut, peak rut, and post rut were kind of my three seasons. Uh, and I considered pre-rut to be anything leading up to when the bulls are herded up with the cows. So it includes the the herding up, you know, the gathering, the harems. Um, but once they get it, the harems established and the bulls are focused on breeding, that's the peak rut. And then once the bulls are done breeding and they leave, that's the that's the post-rut. But there's, you know, there's, there's two more seasons. It's the early season and the late season that I think are important to add on to distinguish. So the early season would be, after the bulls have left their bachelor group, their summertime bachelor group, they break up. That's the start of early season. And then they go off kind of in their little And wh- About when does that start happening in, in your mind? August 10th to August 20th, somewhere in there. Okay. Okay. And so that, that early season is that point. So the bulls are no longer together but they're not, they're not even roaming looking for cows yet. They just go to these little pockets and they start getting ready for the pre-rut. They start getting ready for the rut. They'll be by themselves. They'll rake every tree. They'll rub every tree, which is different than raking. They'll rub every tree to get the velvet off their antlers, to strengthen their neck muscles. Food and water are right there close. They're probably not traveling more than 200 or 300 yards during that 10 to 12 day period. Mm-hmm. And so you get in that pocket and there's 60 rubs right there all together. And you think, oh man, the elk are going to rut like crazy right here. Probably not. That's probably that early season sanctuary where that bull hangs out and he might travel 10 miles from there looking for cows. Um, so that's, that's your early mm. season. Once you, you know. get into the, yeah, once you get into the pre-rut, that's when the bulls start moving, looking for cows. And they'll start covering country. They might start bugling a little bit, you know, location bugles here and there, not getting aggressive, not looking to fight. Um, but during that pre-rut, towards the end of the pre-rut is when they start ascending on the locations where the cows are. They're like, okay, it's time. Cows are going to start coming into estrus any day now. I need to establish the harem. I need to become the herd bull. I need to fight a couple other bulls and run them off and, and prove to them that I am the herd bull. And I need to start controlling this group of cows. And, and maybe I missed it. We're, we're talking about uh, that that stage. Like, what what are we looking at time frame wise now? So I would say, and it's going to vary area by area, but typically those bulls start roaming and they start establishing harems fifth of September. You know, okay. the bull Donnie shot last year on August thirtieth. He had five or six cows with him. He was a six point bull. Mm-hmm. A very mature bull, what I would consider a herd bull, he was with the cows on August 30th, screaming his head off. So, you know, it's not a not a cut and dry thing, but usually and bulls. What are the what are the coordinates as to where that happened? <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll put those in the show notes. I don't want your honey hole, Corey. I just want <laughs> no. you to give me the coordinates. <laughs> I, so funny you bring that up. I've gotten emails from people saying, "I'm not looking for exact areas that you hunt, but if you could give me like." central coordinates of an area or <laughs> a trailhead that I could hike in on. I'm like, what, how, I, I how much that more to do? Yeah. How much more exact can I be? Okay. Well, and then but, when you get the bull down, let me know and I'll come um, quarter it out for you. And yep. you know what? I'll, I'll throw in a pack out for you. Don't exactly. Worry. Sit down. <laughs> 
Uh, but <laughs> anyway, going back to that, September fifth yeah. is about the time that I say the bulls are roaming. You know, they're they're moving around, and by about the fifteenth, I would say they've got their their harems established. Um, so that fifth to fifteenth is what I would consider the heart of the pre-rut. And then anything after the 15th, you know, you start getting into that peak rut. The, the harems are established. The bulls are locked in with their cows. They're still going to be fighting. But once they start breeding, once a cow comes into estrus and those bulls start breeding, they're not going to be as, as likely to fight. They're focused on that cow. They hear another bull bugling 200 yards away. They're going to stay right close to that cow. They aren't going to leave that cow and go to that bull necessarily. So, you know, as we talk about calling, I think that pre-rut is the best time to call a bull in, to have him come into your setup before they get locked in with cows while they're establishing their dominance. Um, you know, it just, there's a lot of factors that play into yeah, that yeah, bull for coming sure. into you. What about once, like when you're talking like those, uh, there's a lot of discussion about satellite bulls. After the herd bulls have, have established their harem, uh, you know, we're, we're talking mid-September, um, those satellite bulls, are they, are they going to be something that you could, you can get fired up and wanting to fight or, or are you still looking for that herd bull? Like your, your process, we're talking your process. Yeah. I, I, I want to find a mature bull and it's, you know, it's not like, oh, it's 300 inches or nothing. Score doesn't matter. I just want a mature bull. I want a bull that's representative for the area of a mature herd bull. So, you know, I want a six point. I think most areas that you hunt a mature bull is going to be a six point bull, um, but it might be a 270 inch six point. It might be a 340 inch. That's, that's not the important part. Mm-hmm. I just feel that if I can find a mature bull, um, he's going to be a little harder to call in than a, than a raghorn, you know, the satellite bull, but, um, the, the screaming interaction, that vocal interaction, the challenge that he's going to provide is going to provide an experience that is, you know, tenfold what that satellite bull is. Now, that satellite bull is probably going to be easier to kill. Um, there's nothing wrong with shooting a satellite bull. I, I shoot satellite bulls. I'm not a, I'm not a trophy hunter. I, yeah, I'm, I target I'm not bigger picky. bulls. But you know, you saw last year if you watched Destination Elk, I targeted a mature bull, and a five-point raghorn came walking by, and I thought, you know what? Never sniff a gift fish. I'm shooting that bull, and <laughs> so I shot the five-point. And and you know, you and the big you bull did walked into four feet, and <laughs> <laughs> you did pass up a bull one time, and uh, I I thought I, I was sitting there with my wife watching it on my phone, and I'm like, he's crazy passing that bull up. Um, I I think it was you were hunting with like born and raised or something. Yeah. And yeah, you, over in Wyoming. Was that in Wyoming? Day, first, yeah, first day, first morning. You know, it was a, a goofy, spindly little four by six. He came into, I think, 20 yards. And, you know, and again, the bull that I shot over there was a five by six. It wasn't like he was considerably bigger, but there's just, you know, it was first it. morning yeah. out of the gates. Yeah, I, I just, I'm confident in that area on that hunt that I'd have more opportunity. And I wasn't ready to, to have the hunt over yet. So yeah, yeah. I, when I pass up, it's not not usually a trophy issue. It's more a, an experience issue. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I would not shoot a spike on opening day. Uh, however, as we get closer to the end of September, those spikes start looking pretty good. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm, yeah, that's just kind of how I am too. But so 
we're, we're getting back to the discussion about the different seasons. We're, we're in peak rut. You've got a herd bull that's got a harem of cows, and he's not, he's not really responding from 300 yards away, but you kind of know he's there. Uh, what do you do to get that bull fired up? So I think even during the peak rut, when bulls are hyper-focused on breeding, um, they're still susceptible to being called in. The same emotions are there. You know, their desire to breed now is higher than their desire to fight. During the pre-rut, that desire to fight is is everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm very aggressive during that time frame of getting in their face and challenging them. Once they start into the, the peak rut, you know, you have the fall equinox that kind of kicks off the peak rut for the cows. Um, that's what kind of triggers the estrus cycle in them. They start coming into estrus cycle. The bulls start breeding. They're super focused on that, and they don't want to fight. A fight could mean they lose and lose all their cows. A fight could mean another bull comes in and steals their cows while they're preoccupied with this other bull. So there's just too many risk factors that, that expose them to losing what they want the most right then, which is the cows. But with that being said, they won't tolerate another bull coming in and trying to steal a cow. And so calling tactic wise, you have to get even closer to that bull to catch his attention, which can be hard because now he has cows. Cows are lingering back. He's up, you know, trying to keep up with the ones in front. He's coming back to the back to push the ones. He wants to keep them together so he doesn't lose any to another bull. There's a bull 300 yards back there. He's not going to turn and come into you most likely. He's going to stay with those cows who are moving from where they fed through the night. They're moving to their bedding area and he's moving that same direction. So you hear he's a herd bull. He just bugled and ran, just bugled and ran. Well, there's a reason he did that. And it's not that he's just bugling, running away from you. He's bugling and staying with the cows who are moving away from you because they're naturally going back to their bedding area. So it's not necessarily that he's trying to get away from you. He's just naturally moving away from you and bugling. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just getting to, you know, I think, area. Yeah. So what you've got to do is you've got to put the pressure on him. And if you're in an open meadow and he's 300 yards away and you can't get any closer without him seeing you, you can't do anything about that. He's going to stand there and watch and you're not going to be able to get aggressive. But the second he goes into the timber, you sprint across that meadow, you get as close to him and as tight to him as you can and you bugle aggressively. He's going to know that. And he might at that point turn around and come back in. He's had enough. Typically, what I found is you've got to pressure him. You've got to stay on him. You're going to have to follow him up the mountain. You're going to have to annoy him and pester him and let him know you're talking to him. Every time he talks, you've got to smack him. Every time a cow talks, you don't answer that. You don't say, I'm coming in to steal your cows. You say, I want to fight you. I want to fight you. I want to fight you. And so every time he answers a cow call or he answers one of his cows, you bugle aggressively and challenge him. And eventually, once you're getting close enough, he's going to be like, okay, I've had enough of you. You're too close. You're pestering me. I'm coming in and I'm going to make sure you know not to follow me anymore. Gotcha. Um, but there's a lot more work that goes into it. A lot more chance of bumping those elk because you're trying to get closer. A lot more chances of getting uh, spotted by the elk. So there's a lot more eyes now with that herd. So it mm-hmm. definitely increases mm-hmm. the, the challenge. And then talking about, uh, talking about post-rut, um, was it was that you that called in a fired up bull like it was like Halloween or something? Yeah, October 29th. And I attribute that more to my son Isaac than to normal elk behavior because he just at some point in his life he sat down on a horseshoe 
And that lucky horseshoe has been <laughs> stuck implanted in his rear end for a long time. Cause yeah, I've got a daughter like that. Yeah. I think he had hunted elk a total of eight days when he killed his fourth bull elk. Yeah. Yeah. So it's wow. the kind of thing that makes a lot of people very upset, including <laughs> his dad who, you know, I hunted elk for, I think nine years before I killed my first elk and he hunted elk for an afternoon and a half and killed his first one. So that is funny. Yeah. I I've got a daughter that I I'm suspicious has sat on that same horseshoe, but I, that, she, she hasn't wanted to hunt for, for several years and halfway through September last year, I think it was the 18th. I take her out. We're not even a mile from the road, 0.7 something miles from the road. Bam. We got a bull. And uh, that, in fact, that's old Broken Tiny up here on the wall. That's uh, the, the namesake of the studio here, the Broken Tiny studio, because he broke his antlers off after I whacked him. But um, th- so she's got this misconception that, oh, yeah, no, you, you go out and, you know, hit the trail and, and walk a little bit. And all of a sudden you make a call and a bull comes running into you and it's all over with. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not how it works. But no, not normally. No, not <laughs> no. Normally. But some some of those youngsters are lucky, and they get that experience. And I've told him, you know, what the law of averages catch up to everybody. So the fact that yeah. you've killed five bulls in six years of hunting, you better be prepared for a dry spell because it's gonna hit you. And so yeah. far, I haven't. So far, I haven't been able to uh, be prophetic on that. He keeps coming through. But, but yeah, back to the original. No, that's, a, that's amazing. Uh, I, think it was, I think it was October 29th and pouring down rain. We're hiking a logging road through a logging area just so we have some visibility, not at all expecting to hear anything bugle that late in the rifle season in an over-the-counter area. Mm-hmm. And uh got to the end of the road where we're going to turn around. And at that point I'd given up, you know, I hadn't seen any fresh tracks in the mud, hadn't heard anything. And I said, you ready to head back? And he's like, one more bugle. And I let out a bugle and over the ridge a bull answered. And it answered like it would answer in September. You know, a lot of times in October, you have to coax a bugle out of an elk and you'll get a very lackadaisical response from 500 yards away. And you never hear that elk again and you never see him. This was a September response. And as we moved up there, we got on the ridge, bugled, he answered again, very, you know, very clear. He is aggressive. We've got to get down on this ridge and we'll be able to see him. So we dropped down the ridge 200 yards and get all set up. And I'm looking from where I last heard the bugle. Cause you just don't call in elk in October. You just, they don't yeah. come in. Yeah. They might have. bugle and you can get in and shoot one with a rifle, but you don't set up on them and call them into a setup. Well, I bugled from down there and the bull answered up above us from where we had just come from. He had left cows on October 29th, ran up through the open clear cut to the top of the ridge. And we had snuck down to get the wind in our favor and crossed paths with him. So he turns and comes back down the ridge. We just walked down and walks into 60 yards and stands there looking around in the open clear cut for us. And Isaac shot him and, and killed <laughs> him. But October 29th, he's with cows He's rutting hard. He's a mature, you know, I mean, if, if for description's sake, 320 class, six by seven, they yeah. typically you'd think would be off by himself in a sanctuary, not saying a peep, recovering from the rut. And he was with cows and acting like it was September. That's nuts. That is just nuts. Yeah. 
How cool is that? So I, <laughs> yeah, and I, I attribute it to, you know, that second rut. The cows come in estrus 28 days after the first time they come in estrus if they don't get bred. Mm-hmm. And so you will get a handful of cows there around the 20th to 25th of October that'll come back into estrus and sometimes create a little frenzy there where you have three or four bulls that are bugling like it's mid-September and chasing cows. So I attribute it to that. Last year, the bull that he shot was, I think, October 22nd, 24th, somewhere in there. There were three bulls bugling. Uh, There were probably 60 cows in the herd. Everything had kind of joined together after the rut. And then I'm sure it was a second rut type of a thing that pulled three or four bulls. They were younger bulls. The bull he shot was a... It was a small six point five by six or something, but um, it had just wow. pulled those bulls that were still clinging onto the rut. Some of those satellite bulls, um, and yeah. they were yeah. very vocal. That's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible for sure. Did I lose you there? Nope, I'm here. Okay, just making sure. I, uh, you know, this Idaho internet, you got to keep an eye on it. <laughs> All right, Corey, I, I let's 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 move into this lightning round of questions here. Um, I want to, I, I always, I, and I've, I've done this with every guest, uh, and, and we'll continue <clears throat> for the school September series, because I, I think that, that getting everybody's take on these particular questions is really important for every elk hunter to kind of have a handle on, um, hit us with your, uh, philosophy in regards to the moon phase and how it affects elk, uh, during the rut. Okay. So there's, there's two philosophies I have on moon phase. One is for mountain elk and one is for desert elk. And I think that elk are far more affected by the moon in a desert climate. So we're talking New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, Mm -hmm. than they are in states like Colorado, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, I mentioned that, uh, Idaho, Oregon. Um, I think the moon phase is not as critical in the mountain states. I don't know for sure why that is, but I've hunted Arizona and it is like a light switch when the moon goes from full to half moon. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like a light switch in the morning. It's kind of like midday hunting. You go to those desert states and the elk just, it's like somebody sends out a broadcast at 930 and says, okay, silence guys, everybody bed down for the day. And you don't hear another peep. It's like a a light switch shuts off. You come to Idaho or... Montana or Wyoming or something will bugle all day and the bulls will answer. They'll be in their beds and not as aggressive, but they'll still answer. And then you get in there and they'll get just as aggressive in the middle of the day. But that moon phase in, in those desert states, the elk seem to not be nearly as active during the day to be even harder to get to bugle during the day to head back 30 minutes after daylight to their bedding area and stay there all day until 30 minutes before dark. Wow. Whereas in the mountain states, I feel like the moon phase, yeah, they might head back to their bedding. They might, you know, not linger as long as they're going back. They might head back a little earlier. But I've also found that, you know, in the mountain states on a full moon, those elk get up, those bulls especially get very restless midday. And they are much more likely to respond on a full moon during the middle of the day than they might be when there is no moon and they've spent more time bugling in the morning. So, uh, moon phase, I don't, I don't put a lot of stock in. If I have a choice between two weeks, everything else being equal, I'm going to go when there's no moon versus a full moon. Uh, but if I'm forced to hunt during a full moon in a place like Wyoming or Idaho or something, I'm not even going to bat an eye. I'll go and, and know that, hey, it's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. I, 
I actually completely agree with everything you said there. That that's that's awesome. No, I, I think you know, in this September, um, this September is looking pretty good in terms of it's moon. The best, it's the best yeah. September in terms of fall equinox, moon phase, and right calendar. Yeah, I know. I it's uh, I think that's that's why I, I'm I'm pretty excited for this year coming up. I was I was actually looking at it a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going, man, this September. I don't know if I've ever seen that layout any better. Uh, in terms of moon phase, so, but I'm, I'm yeah, like, you've got, you've got go basically ahead. the 12th, the 12th through the 26th yeah. with no worries of moon, which coincides with the pre-rut, the peak rut, the fall equinox, the weather getting better is, you know, cooling off in the second half of September. So yeah, yeah, this is, if you have two weeks to hunt this year, the 12th through the 26th should be phenomenal. So that that answers one of the lightning round questions. You got you got oh, somebody coming. Nope, no. that's totally fine. That's <laughs> totally fine. Uh, somebody's coming out from uh, Midwest back east somewhere, and and I'm I'm I focus a little bit on them because um, they have to plan a little bit more uh, accordingly to their schedules and vacations and and the the travel and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's a bigger decision where those of us that live out west. We know if the moon's not right this weekend, boy, we we'll just go out the next weekend. You know what I mean? And so, yep. um, when we're when we're talking, there there you guys have it, because uh, that was one of the questions. If somebody's coming out west to hunt elk, what are what days are you going uh, for for this coming September? And that twelfth through the twenty, 20 did you say twenty fourth or 29th? 26, 27, somewhere in there. That's like a two yeah. week range. If you had to pick one week, you're, you're breaking it down into like the 11th through the 20th or the 18th through the 27th type of a time frame. Mm. I think either of them are going to be good. That earlier season, I like it to be able to call in bulls before they get herded up. They're a little easier to call away. The 18th through the 27th, you're going to hear more bugling. They're going to be more vocal, but it might be a little harder to pull those bulls away from the cows. Um, I think it's sixes this year. Either of those two time frames are going to be really good. The caveat I always throw into that discussion, though, is the state of Colorado. And the reason why is Colorado, for whatever reason, feels it's necessary to throw a muzzleloader season right in the middle of archery season. Yeah, so archery I... season's still going on, and they open up a muzzleloader season for a week right in the middle of it. That is the weirdest thing, isn't it? Yeah, I, so I don't know of any other like, state that does that. No. So you're you're out there hunting with a bow, trying to be quiet, bugling, and then 60 yards away from you, a muzzleloader goes off. And so <laughs> it's, it's, it definitely, and I don't know, I've only hunted Colorado once. Uh, it was not during the muzzleloader season. I've heard that in some units, it's like the orange army out there muzzleloader hunting. In other units, they never even hear a muzzleloader shot go off during the muzzleloader season. So huh. I think it really depends on on that pressure. But this year, I think that season runs like the 12th through the 19th, 12th through 20th, something like that. Yeah. So you might opt for that later part of the month, you know, that 18th through the 27th time frame to avoid a majority of that muzzleloader season if you're looking at Colorado. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that is super weird. So hunting elk just prior to or just after a storm front, what's, what's your take on it? Uh, are you giving me a choice of which one I would prefer or do I need to answer the, both of them? Do you, do you have a choice or do you have a preference? Uh, I'd rather hunt them after a storm front than yeah. before. After a storm front? Yeah. Do you feel like they get hunkered down a little bit during the storm and get antsy and then the storm moves off and then they, they, they just get a little giddy or something or what, 
was the that and that. I think you know leading up to a storm front you usually have wind you know wind is usually what brings a storm front in which mm-hmm. can be really hard to hunt in you just have swirling wind and unpredictable wind uh, because of that the elk use their noses to survive and if they have a swirling wind they're probably going to hunker down. They're probably going to stay in an area where they can use their eyes a little bit better. It's windy. They can't use their ears. Um, they're probably going to hunker down in thick brush or out where it's going to be really hard to hunt them. Um, and then, you know, obviously your wind is getting blown up and down the mountain all over. Yeah. After the storm front, it seems like everything just calms down. The elk come out, you know, they've been locked up for two or three days. So they're probably going to stay out a little longer feeding during the day. Uh, they're antsy, you know, if it's peak rut and you get a big storm there, the bulls are like, I just missed out on three days of breeding. Um, so yeah, I think hmm. after a storm front is, is definitely a preference if I have to choose before or after. And what's in your day pack? So I break my, my day pack down into three categories. I have the essential category. I have my, um, hunt category, and then I have a kill category. And my essential category are things like food, water, uh, first aid, a flashlight, toilet paper, just the, the basics that I need every day. And then my hunt category are my license tags, uh, my bugle tube, my calls, my wind checker, my range finder. And uh, I put trekking poles in that category and keep a, a set of breakdown trekking poles in my pack. And then uh, the last category is the, the kill kit. And that's the things that I need for when I'm successful. So my knife, the blades, uh, flagging ribbon, parachute cord, uh, camera batteries, game bags, game bags, some wipes, extra flashlight. Um, so I keep it pretty streamlined. I don't carry a whole lot that I don't need. Uh, my day pack, I usually try to keep between 15 to 20 pounds max. And that's if I have, you know, optional things like a water filter and a rain jacket, it might hit 20 pounds. Other than that, it's under 20 pounds for a, for a day pack. Oh, cool. Yeah. No, that's perfect. A, a, a 20 pound day pack. Uh, I think I go too heavy, but I, I'm, I'm always like packing stuff that I don't need. However, <laughs> this, this year you mentioned trekking poles this year. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get a set of trekking poles. Uh, I've never used them before and everybody says they make a a big difference. And I I just, I was the same. I thought, you know, we always called them yuppie sticks or hippie sticks. You know, that's what the hikers use, not the hunters. And, uh, yeah, the first time you use them, climbing them out, and once you the first couple of times, it's like these things get in the way and they're clanky and they don't add anything. Once you start to use your arms to help pull you up the mountain when you're hiking up, you can almost, I won't say jog up the mountain, but it improves the speed that you can go up the mountain without feeling like you're exerting yourself anymore. But where they really shine is when you're coming down the mountain with a heavy load, just being able to take and for nothing more than balance just to balance with the heavy load. So you aren't using all those little balance muscles and then going over windfalls, just, you know, they are a huge, huge benefit. So I carry just a little breakdown set, just a fold up set uh, in my pack all the time. So that if I do kill something, I have it. And a lot of times I'll pull them out for hiking in. We know we're going a mile or two. I'll strap my bow on my backpack and go in in the dark with the trekking poles. Let me ask you a silly question about that. I have, I have these silly um, telescoping trekking poles that I use for snowshoeing in the winter. Can I take the bottom part off and put it like a different insert and just use those? Or do you recommend just actually getting some legitimate trekking pole? I don't, I literally don't know anything about them. 
they're probably the exact same. There's probably no difference other than in the snow, you use a basket and out of the snow, I just use the little rubber tip on it to get yeah. a better grip and a smaller yeah, well, they, profile. It came with both. So I yep. imagine yep. I have, I have some pretty severe arthritis in the knees that comes from uh, being in the, in the Marine Corps. And, uh, I, I feel like going downhill is always really painful for me. So I, I feel like maybe those trekking poles are going to alleviate a lot of that pain. They do. Yeah, no, it, it takes a lot of pressure and a lot of what you, you know, you think about doing a pull up or something or even bench pressing, you'll struggle to do a pull up. But if somebody comes and just puts their hands on your hips and gives you the impression that they're helping lift you, they might only give you a, a five pound of force advantage, but you know, you can do a, a push up, or they might mm -hmm. put two fingers on the bar and the weight that was sitting on your chest that you couldn't budge. Now you're able to lift and trekking poles are kind of the same. They just, they take enough weight off that it just makes it feel easier. Yeah. I, I, I'm excited to see what kind of difference it makes. I don't know why I haven't been using them for bear, but I'm, I'm going out on Friday, which actually this episode will come out after this trip. So anyway, I might, I might take them then and try them out. So, uh, yeah. what about, what about solo hunting? Do you have any tips for solo hunters? Yeah. And it's, you know, like I said, I like to hunt by myself sometimes, but when it comes to calling that the hangup is if an elk gets to a point where he can see where the calls are coming from, but doesn't see an elk, he's probably not coming any closer. They just, they haven't, just crazy ability to be able to pinpoint sound and say that sound came from under that tree. And if they get to a point 70 yards away where they can see that tree and they don't see an elk there, even if they don't, you know, even if you bugled when they were 120 yards out and they come into 70 yards and they say, that's the tree that bull bugled from, if they don't see an elk, they might not come any closer. So you get that hang up, which is where having a, a two person setup, you know, a caller back behind a shooter out in front you can set up so that bull has to come into the shooter's shooting lanes before he can see where the caller is, is calling from and you get a shot. Mm -hmm. When you're a solo hunter, now both of those are in the same location. The caller and the shooter are in the same location. So it can be difficult to get that bull to come to a point where he can see where the calls are coming from and you still get a shot. So a couple things that I always stress. Number one, if you can broadcast your calls back behind you to make it sound like the calls are coming from 20 yards behind you, that's going to give you an advantage. That bull's going to be looking 20 yards past you uh, for the, the source of the sounds. It might get him into a shooting lane. Or if you call and then move ahead 20 yards, if the train allows you to do that, mm -hmm. again, he's going to pinpoint that sound and not be looking right at your location when he comes in. Um, but realistically, it's a matter mm -hmm. of setting up in a, in a setup that forces that bull to come in close before he can see the, the location of the source of those calls. So okay. if you're in a, on the edge of a meadow and the bull's on the other side, a hundred yards away, you're probably not going to get a shot at that bull as a solo hunter. Yeah. If you are in open timber and it's flat and he can see through the timber from a hundred yards, he's probably going to stop at a hundred yards till he sees something. If you are below the bull, He's probably going to come to a vantage point where he has a visual advantage above you and he's going to stop there and not come any closer. Uh, all these things. So trying to get on the same level as the bull, trying to set up and say, okay, that bull's going to have to come to right there before he can see where I'm at. And when he gets right there, he's inside my shooting comfort range. I know I've got a good shot there instead of setting up and being like, oh, I'm going to be able to see him at 80 yards. 
if you can see that bull at 80 yards, he's probably not going to come any closer. See, I need a hunting partner like Donnie just because of the, the reaction after, after <laughs> he gets an arrow in a bull is like worth watching the, an entire series, watching that reaction. Totally. I couldn't agree more. And, it, you know, and I talk a lot about hunting with a partner and that team effort. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes your calling more efficient. It makes your experience more rewarding. It makes the celebration uh, more intense. It makes the pack more enjoyable. There's just other than I just want to get away from people for a few days and go hunt by myself. Other than that, there's no reason to to not hunt with a hunting partner. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So what would you say are the top three things every hunter, well, and, and to be specific, elk hunter in September should know to be successful on a consistent basis? What is there a, like a top three list that you recommend to everybody? I think just, you know, looking at all the different pieces of the puzzle, you know, you've got preparation and planning you've got scouting you've got gear you've got using elk calls you've got physical conditioning you've got elk calling strategy i mean there's just all these different pieces that each play a role and and realistically support each other in some way and the more proficient you are in each of those areas i think the the more chance you have of being consistent or uh, successful on a consistent basis um, as you look at all of those I really think you can break it down into if there were three things that I said, Hey, if you're really going to focus on something to take your game to the next level and be consistent in your success, understanding elk behavior would be on that list. Um, Knowing why elk do what they do, their travel, where they feed, where they bed. There's a reason they do that. And if you understand the, the why more so than how I could point on a map and say, if you go here, there's going to be an elk bedded here. If you go here, this is where that elk is going to feed. You can walk into that one situation and maybe be successful. But the and next you, time you go out without that information, if you don't understand why that elk was there or why he was traveling where he was, it's not going to help you. But if you can understand those elk behaviors and the why, I think the why is so, so important. So more important than the how maybe. But just mm-hmm. understanding an elk moves from lower, they, they feed and, and spend the night in lower country. Why is that? Well, because the thermals are coming down, so they're protected. So they smell any danger around them. If they're on top of the mountain, all the predators could come walking up the mountain and get within 20 yards of them before they realize they're there. Yeah. So they go to that lower country for the thermals. In the morning, they move up the mountain because the thermals are still coming down. When they get to their bedding area, it's usually higher up on the mountain because the thermals change and now come up the mountain. So just simple things like that, that are so important to understand. Once you understand, it's like, I know where he's going. I know why he's going there. Mm-hmm. I know that if I go there right now, he's going to smell me. I have to wait for three hours. Then I can move in when the wind's stable and I know where he's going to be and I know how to approach him. So just that elk behavior would, would definitely be on that list. Yeah. Um, another thing on there would be understanding um, what the elk need in the different seasons. And again, Randy Newberg talks way more in depth and has taught me a lot about understanding those needs. But during September, a bull elk needs a cow elk. Cows don't need the bulls. They need Mm -hmm. feed. You know, they aren't, they aren't into their winter patterns. They're looking for feed and and security and the bull's going to follow them there. So if I'm looking for a bull, I want to find a cow. And if I want to find a cow, I need to understand 
what to look for. So just understanding each of those seasons, what the primary needs of the elk are, and then knowing where to find those, knowing the, the habitat and the terrain. And I think the last one is would be confidence. And I think that's really the, the final easy button is when you gain confidence in all of those areas, success becomes easier and it becomes more consistent. And yeah, when I say yeah. all of those areas, when you're confident in your physical ability, when you're confident in your calling ability, when you're confident in your shooting ability, when you're confident in your scouting that you're going to find elk, confident in your ability to find elk, you know, all of those things, when you, when you possess a certain level of confidence, you can maintain it. And once you reach that, it's, you know, you watch a hunter struggle for eight or 10 years and all of a sudden the light bulb comes on because they've put in the time they've gained the experience and the knowledge and now they're confident and they can replicate that success yeah yeah now this that is all super good information and um you know that uh, that like exactly what you just said understanding the elk behavior and and all the different facets that go into elk hunting in september just knowing all that will give you the confidence and and the understanding that it, it, it elk hunting's tough man Elk hunting takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of persistence and it takes a lot of grit. And, uh, I, I just, everything, I feel like a lot of, a lot of that came together in this episode and, and I think we got a lot out of it. So I, I, uh, this is, this has been great. What, uh, yeah, it's got, got me fired up. Now, I, now I've got yeah. to wait two and a half months to go out and actually hunt elk. So. I know. What are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, we probably improve in, in each of those areas in that confidence level. And that's something I've learned not to take for granted. No matter how long I've hunted elk, I can't just sit back and say, I'm at a point that's good enough. I have to continue working hard every year in every one of those areas and pushing to get better. Because if I do stop, the elk aren't stopping. They are yeah. working every day to survive. And if I'm not working every day to match up against them, they're going to have the advantage. I always laugh when, when I hear like some, sometimes on, on the point you just made these, some of these anti-hunting groups that, that talk about how, you know, it's so unfair that we go out with these, you know, weapons and, and uh, it's, it, they, they make it sound like the, the game that we pursue are just standing out there waiting for us <laughs> right off the road, you know, you know, and it, and, and I think that that puts the, sometimes that rubs off the wrong impression to people that are considering getting into hunting, um, that, that you have to understand that whether you're hunting a mule deer or a whitetail or, or an elk or any wild game species that, that you can get a tag for, you're going into their element that they spend 365 days in trying to survive, survive when the odds are always against them. The, so it's, it's just a, it's, it's a tall order. It's a difficult task in understanding more about these animals. Like you were talking about is going to breed a lot more confidence. And, and so, um, this is, uh, I, I think, you know, just recording with you today, I've, I know I've got a lot more confidence now. And so, uh, you said a few things that have really triggered my curiosity. I'm going to have to now, thanks to you, I'm going to have to dig in and, and get Google out and a couple of my other <laughs> resources and, and start work, working through it. So, uh, Corey, where can people find you? Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about Elk 101, the University of Elk Hunting, the Elk Talk podcast. Uh, where, where can people find you? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the hub of everything that I do is elk101.com. And mm -hmm. from that website, you know, there's links that go to, to all the other components of it. But 
that's where it started. You know, it, it, it really, just a quick background. I was asked to do a, a seminar on elk hunting at Cabela's and they wanted it to be a more in-depth like class. And so I said, well, I can do that, but I'm going to spend a couple nights there and, you know, really prepare for this thing. How am I going to be compensated? And they said, you can charge for the class and you, you know, we don't get a cut of that. You charge whatever you want. If people come, you keep that. We just want to bring people into the store. And they said, but you can't charge money in the store. You know, you can't take money in the store. And I said, so I can just set up a table outside and when people come, they can pay. And like, yeah, you can do that. Or just, you know, create a, a one page website with a PayPal button on it and people can pay by PayPal. So I created Elk 101 as a one page website with a PayPal pay here button on it, sent out an email to 60 people that I knew at the time that were elk hunters and said, I'm going to be doing a, a deal at Cabela's for two nights next week and it's $19. You can go to this website and click the button and pay with PayPal. And it's, you know, on education and elk hunting. So I'll call it elk101.com. And that's how, that's how it started. And really? so I didn't got, know, you know that. The, yeah. So it's, you know, very humble beginnings as leading up to that. People would send a, you know, down at the bottom of the form, there was a comment section. Somebody would say, do I need to bring my bugle tube? And I'd reply and say, yes, absolutely. We're going to spend an hour talking about using calls and, you know, I'll have calls to give everyone, but bring a bugle tube if you want. And so they started asking questions. Well, then it turned into, you know, what backpack do you use? And then it turned into after the seminar, you know, the class people asking more questions. And so I wrote a couple articles to answer those questions. And then more and more people asked about what gear do you use? So I said, you know what, instead of sending them out to a manufacturer's website, I should just sell the gear that I use, you know? And so it's in my bedroom, in my closet, I had a shelf that I stocked gear on and shipped out of, out of my closet for the first year or two, just a little gear store. Uh, we added the forum, uh, you know, and then it's just kind of snowballed from there. And so, well, I'm the, not looking for it, your honey hole, but where is that closet? <laughs> it's, it's changed now. It's actually in a <laughs> warehouse in Utah that everything's shipped out of. So yeah, I imagine it's a little larger um, scale now. It is, it is. And you know, it's, it's fun to just watch it continue to grow and to watch a, a new component of Elk 101. You know, four years ago, we added the University of Elk Hunting, the online course. And mm -hmm. that's a huge part of what we do now. A membership gets you access to the course, but you know, we do. Yep. I'm a member. Live, yeah. We do mm -hmm. live Q and A's, which you probably got the email today for, you know, the membership gets, uh, the members get to go to a live Q and A. So we talk in elk hunting and um, discounts on gear, you know, our gear store, a, a member gets 15% discount. So just, it just continues to evolve. Uh, Randy and I have been good friends for years and we decided to start a podcast. So we run the Elk Talk podcast and everything that, that I'm involved in comes back to elk hunting, you know, from a business standpoint. But I think more pointedly, it comes back to sharing experiences in a way that will hopefully contribute to the education of somebody else that will contribute to their success improving. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, even our, our entertainment stuff, our YouTube channel, you know, we, we film our hunts, but there's an educational component to them. Uh, our social media on Facebook, Instagram, uh, we try to share, you know, teaching Tuesday topics or whatever it is, you know, just yeah, everything we tips. do is, is meant to, to educate and inspire elk hunters. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think it's a, and it's a great platform. There's so much information on elk 101 and university of elk hunting, uh, which I, I am, I think that if you guys listen to the elk talk podcast, there is a promo code for, um, uh, university of elk hunting. Is that, is that right? We can do that, or we can create a custom one for for your listeners if you want to. I'm happy to do that. And yeah, we can if we want to just use the promo code Huntsman. There you go. Work? Works for me. Promo code Huntsman. That's going to get you uh, twenty dollars off when you sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course. And during the month of June, we have a pretty awesome promotion going on. We're giving away uh, a five day elk hunt where I will be calling elk for the winner. And that gets you 20 entries in that promotion if you sign up during the month of June. So $20 off that one. 20 entries. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. And I, I, will, I will say just uh, for, for the listeners, if, if you've never gone through the University of Elk Hunting course and, and gotten the content out of there, you have enough time from this episode to September 1 to thoroughly cover everything in that course. And what it does is it's going to take everything that we've talked about in this episode and, and expand on it 10 times. Uh, and, and there's a lot of information within there that we didn't talk about uh, in, in this episode that, you know, which is always what happens. I, I, I create this big list of questions and we only hit about 20% of them, but um, it, it's going to have all that information in there and it's, it's good information. You guys will learn a lot out of that and it, it'll really build a lot of confidence for, for going into this season. And I, I definitely recommend it. So um, yeah, no, Corey, this has been great. This has been great, man. I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And, and Jim, sincerely, thank you for your service to our country. I, I don't take that lightly. Um, oh, I appreciate especially that. Especially in, in the times that we're in. I know that people have made sacrifices that, that enable me and every one of us to enjoy things that, you know, beyond freedom, beyond rights, um, privileges we have and everything. I know that those have been fought for and protected and sacrificed. So I, I greatly appreciate that. Oh, I, pr- I appreciate you, you saying that. I think, you know what I ought to do is I ought to get these, I ought to get t-shirts made that say professor at the school of September series and send them out to everybody that comes on this. So I'd send one to you <laughs> and the elk nut and Dirk and everybody that's coming on. Um, I think I'm, I, I think I'm going to do that. <laughs> so we're going to have to keep in touch awesome. so I can get your address and send, send a t-shirt out to you. Absolutely. No. And anytime you want to talk about, you know, hunting and conservation and how the two go hand in hand and how hunters are the, the, the platform for preserving and conserving animals and hunting yeah. and that. I, I think we could spend hours talking about that, but that's a topic I'm incredibly passionate about as, as well. Yeah, me as well. I think, I think we could do a couple of good episodes with that and maybe let's plan on that. Let's get through hunting season. And, <laughs> and that's a, it's a great way uh, to keep the fire lit after, you know, that post hunting season where, where we all get a little bit uh, snowed in and depressed. Um, that, that's a good way to, to carry that torch. So, uh, absolutely. Thank, <clears throat> thanks again for coming on. Uh, don't hang up. So I know I've got your links right here cause I'll put them all in the show notes for elk 101 and Instagram and, and elk talk podcast, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but just, uh, real quick. Thanks. Thanks again for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me and, stoking this fire i'm uh, i don't know what we're gonna do for another two and a half months here but it's uh <laughs> i've at least got two weeks here soon i've still got two weeks of bear season left so i'm, I'm gonna take advantage of that absolutely <laughs> well good luck bear hunting and thanks again jim thank you appreciate it 
Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. Glad you joined us. If you liked that episode, please tell a friend and let me know what you thought at jimandthewesternhuntsman.com. And don't forget to check out our show sponsors. The links are in the show notes. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain. Mm-hmm.